and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Hello and welcome to this Monday, June 4th, 2018 edition of the Hagman Report. So great to be here today. We have a fantastic show lined up for you today. Uh, a whole lot of places, different places we're going to go, and we are jam-packed full of guests. This first half hour, if I can get my paper, is just news with myself and my father. Then, 7.30 to 8, we are going to be joined by Ashton Birdie. She is coming on to talk about a number of things, uh, her time at Berkeley and what it's like to be a millennial activist journalist. Then we're going to be joined by Carl Alfred, and uh, we're going to be talking to Carl about uh, resolutionary uh, patriotism and what is a resolutionary patriot, and this is going to be a a very interesting topic. And then Craig Sawmansor will be joining us at 8.30 We're going to be breaking down what is the latest coming out of Tucson, Arizona, where it looks as though a human trafficking camp, a child trafficking camp, possibly an immigration uh, human smuggling camp. We don't exactly know what this is for, but Alicia Powell has a great article up today on the Gateway Pundit dealing with this. U.S. veterans uncover underground bunker possibly used for child trafficking camp in Arizona. This is by Alicia Powell from yesterday on the Gateway Pundit, a group of veterans who scour bridges, excuse me, and washes to find and aid fellow veterans who are homeless discovered what appears to be an encampment holding area for children sold as sex slaves. Veterans on patrol stumbled upon the encampment in Tucson, Arizona Friday, but it wasn't a typical homeless camp. In the middle of the desert, they found trees with uh, restraints on the site, children's clothing, a baby crib, strollers, outdoor bathrooms, pornographic material, hair dye, and a five-feet-tall underground cave that had a dresser and crates. The cave was not big enough for an adult, but a child could easily fit inside. And up there on the Gateway Pundit, you can see some of the videos, but that was Craig the Sawman Sawyer and his organization, Vets for Child Rescue, which discovered this. And we are going to be joined by him at 8.30 to talk about his latest discovery, as it really has gone viral in the uh, on the Internet and throughout social media. So it's going to be very interesting to hear what his thoughts are on this as he again is the one who discovered it he'll be able to parse through what he believes it is and and what he uh, can rule out based on what he saw there then in hour number three peter barry chowka who joins us each uh, monday in the third hour for his segment between the lines with peter chowka we're going to be covering a lot he's got some new stuff up on hagman report uh go to hagmanreport.com bookmark the site make sure you check it daily as there is new and curated content up there on a regular basis just about every day well every day there is and make sure you check it daily and also subscribe to our youtube channel but up there there's a few stories in the front judge napolitano on scotus ruling this is a dangerous opinion what are we talking about what did the supreme court rule on today well the u.s supreme court 
ruled that Christian a Christian baker uh, does not have to make a cake for a homosexual couple. The court says the state panel violated the baker's religious rights. The ruling was seven to two, with two liberals joining five conservatives. And we have some more details for you we're going to get into up on Hagman Report. Again, there's a video of Judge Napolitano explaining why he says this is a dangerous verdict. And Reuters says that this Supreme Court decision was a major victory for a Christian baker who refused to bake based on his Christian beliefs to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, stopping short of setting a major precedent, allowing people to claim religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. And this is uh, being looked at one of two ways. Judge Napolitano, who is the uh, lead Fox News legal analyst, says the decision will open the door to religious discrimination uh, in the future along religious religious lines, and that this is uh, not a good idea, and and this could really backfire in the face of uh, when we're dealing with future cases. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about that uh, with my dad and with a few of our guests because that is uh, a legal matter and could it open the door to religious discrimination uh, from the other side and we've already seen that as far as what we see on social media what we see in our school systems and whatnot. well um, switching gears real quick here Starbucks we covered last week Starbucks had closed its doors for 24 hours for some racial sensitivity training which was anything but I don't know how many people heard what happened during the racial sensitivity training in Starbucks, but apparently what this was was the employee sat down in a room and watched video after video of white police officers beating black suspects or verbally abusing or verbally assaulting, as the language said, black suspects. This was the whole of the racial sensitivity training, and if anything, that kind of... uh Propaganda will only further divide. It will only uh, create more animosity, more anger, especially if those who are viewing it are minorities or African Americans, or even if they're white. It could stir up so much unneeded uh, anger. So, just showing that their goal, their goal is not, uh, you know, religious unification and harmony. It is division, and they're going to feed that division any way they can. Well, what happened in response to Starbucks? sensitivity training showing these crazy videos well one you had tons of negative backlash on social media facebook twitter even employees were making statements to different news organizations telling them how uncomfortable this was how uncalled for this was now this is the second blunder by starbucks in just as many weeks you saw after some incident in philadelphia the uh where two men were sitting in a Starbucks who hadn't purchased anything, wanted to use the bathroom, and the, they were thrown out due to the store policy, saying if you're not a customer, you cannot use the services of the business. Well, what happened was Starbucks changed its policy and said, hey, everybody's welcome. We're going to open the door. It doesn't matter if you uh, you know buy coffee from us or you want to use needles in our bathroom. You can come in and you will not be discriminated against. Well, that did not last too long. Uh, each and every individual store, I'm sure, quietly, uh, as the problems arose, dealt with it separately, but they had to walk back that whole everybody is welcome, uh, message that they rolled out because it would just be a gathering place for, for junkies and for homeless people. But now, due to these last two latest blunders, 
Starbucks, the chairman, Howard Schultz, is stepping down. Starbucks Corporation was down 1.09% today in the Dow Jones. Howard Schultz will step down as the executive chairman and as a member of the uh, Realtors Board at the end of the month, according to a memo from Schultz to employees late Monday. Shares of Starbucks fell more than 2% after the news, and they recently paired losses. Schultz is credited with taking the coffee giant from a local Seattle chain to a global powerhouse. He will become Starbucks chairman emeritus on June 26th. As I prepare to step away, I'd like to humbly remind you not to lose sight of what matters most, your fellow partners and our customer, Schultz wrote. Onward with love, he signed off. Starbucks last month closed one afternoon for employee-based anti-bias training after a video of two men being handcuffed and removed by at least six police officers from Philadelphia Starbucks went viral in April. The men were waiting for a business associate when they were thrown out, leading to the store shutting down and sensitivity training starting. So either way, uh, the CEO, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz, to step down. Very interesting development. Now, switching gears again, uh, two pieces of information, well, three pieces, two pertaining to Robert Mueller. One, the IG report that is highly anticipated based on the handling, FBI's handling of the 2016 presidential election has been delayed yet again. It was supposed to be published tomorrow as there was going to be test of testimony in front of uh, one of the, the Senate committees and something happened and now they're saying this is going to be delayed, I believe, until the 11th. I have to uh, find what the latest pushback date is. Uh, but just real quick here, one thing I was not able to do before the show or did not think to do was to find the correct date. But if it stands the same as it was earlier on Saturday, it looks like it will be on the 11th. But again, that is just me working off my memory. But here, FBI and Hillary Clinton investigation to take center stage on Capitol Hill. Who's Here's who will be on the hot seat. The countdown is on. Very soon we may know more information about the Department of Justice Inspector General report on how the FBI handled the criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails during her time as Secretary of State. Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley announced a hearing titled Examining the Inspector General's First Report on Justice Department Decisions Regarding the 2016 Presidential Election. It will likely be held Monday, June 11th at 10 a.m. Eastern. So there you go. It was scheduled for yesterday, or I'm sorry, for tomorrow. But it has been moved on until uh, a week from today, June 11th at 10 a.m. Republican lawmakers who wanted to remain unnamed told CBN News that the Inspector General will be going after former Director of the FBI, James Comey, and former Deputy Director, Andrew McCabe, on how they handled the case against Clinton. A number of key officials will be called to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In January 2017, the DOJ Inspector General opened the investigation. In February of 2018, the Inspector General released a report exposing McCabe as a serial liar and justifying his firing by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It's a report some say could end with indictments against several District of Columbia power players, including the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. 
Hans van Spakovi, legal senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, said there is no question by setting up a home server to handle all of her government communications, including classified materials, that fits the definition of gross negligence. The report is also expected to show why then-FBI Director James Comey initially cleared Hillary Clinton in July of 20, 2016 in the middle of her presidential campaign. Okay, so this goes on to say, both Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Oversight Committee are prepared to have the Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz appear before them later this month. The report will look deeper into the unusual private meeting between the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch at the time, and President Bill Clinton on an airport tarmac. It happened only days before Comey's announcement that the FBI would not see criminal charges in the email server case. Now, okay, I'm not going to read any more on this article. We have a lot we're dealing with in this IG report, it looks like. One, it's going to deal with how not only the FBI, James Comey, specifically, Andrew McCabe specifically, what their involvement was in handling, how they handled the, the probe into the Hillary Clinton email scandal, it's also going to look into the then Attorney General's and how the tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton uh, is has affected that investigation. They're also going to be looking into the DOJ's handling of some of this as well. Uh, the Ju- Justice Department's internal affairs cop is the sort of work Horowitz does, investigating the investigators. In that role, he suddenly finds himself in the political spotlight, a politically divisive voice in the partisan controversies over the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server when she was Secretary of State and its subsequent probe of the Trump campaign in Russia. In the coming weeks, Horowitz is expected to release nearly a 500-page report. You hear that? It's going to be a big one. 500-page report criticizing the Justice Department and FBI for their handling of the Clinton email investigation. People familiar with the matter said they, like others in this report, spoke on the condition of anonymity and spoke frank about the matters but are not authorized to discuss publicly. Meanwhile, he has intensified his review of the Russia investigation, interviewing the FBI agent who once led the case and inviting him back for a second conversation, talking about uh, Horowitz talking to, where is it here, Uh, excuse me, I'm flying solo right now, so I don't have uh, the old man with me, well, well, Eric had the video up on screen, I'm signaling, I'm like, hey, John, put John over here, have him sit here and do audio for a minute, because I didn't have my my stuff together, but either way, June 11th, the report's going to be coming out, and there's going to be a number of committees that he's going to testify uh, to about his 500-page IG report. Now, that's a big report, 500 pages. The question is, and the speculation arises, is James Comey, is uh, McCabe, are they going to be facing criminal charges, criminal liability? Many people seem to think that, yes, they will. They are going to face some sort of either lying, uh, uh, misconduct, and in my opinion, obviously not reading the report, not knowing what really went on, except what we have been given bits and pieces of, this is a huge criminal conspiracy. And it seems like a lot more than just Andrew uh, Andrew McCabe and James, Com- James Comey should be in trouble. Those two were the ones, yes, maybe that called the shots from the very top. 
but those two are not the only ones that carried out this criminal conspiracy. This was done by a network of officials at the top levels of government, and this was done for the sole purpose to undermine candidate, then President Donald Trump, just in case he won. It was their insurance policy. Now, other people will say their the insurance policy spoke about in the stroke page text messages speaks to something else, speaks to something more sinister. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. We don't know that for sure. But this whole business of Jeff Sessions recusing himself, and for people who say trust Jeff Sessions, we've talked about this a lot, he might be a good guy, he might be a good Republican, he might be a good Christian, but there's something wrong with the way he's handling all of this mess in D.C. He is not protecting the president. He is not. He's recused himself from something he did not even have to recuse himself from, laying the further groundwork for the conspiracy of Rod Rosenstein and uh, Comey to set up their friend Robert Mueller to head the investigation. Now, Robert Mueller has had his funds of how much the investigation has cost hidden for a while. We have seen figures being released around so far that $17 million, at the very least, this Robert Mueller probe has cost the American taxpayers $17 million. Let that sink in. I know we run a $20 trillion deficit. I know, you know, the, the government spends billions of dollars on, on wasteful projects left and right, pro- probably on a daily basis. But still, $17 million. If we split that up between the listening audience who are listening live right now, I'm sure it would be life-changing for most of us, or it would help us get through another three, four, five months, a year of, of not having to, you know, grind every, every, uh, penny uh, in order to be able to pay for everything, not putting off buying food or medicine and making those decisions. It is unfortunate to see how much money is truly wasted by our government, and they are the true robbers of the people. And, you know, this is a discussion, uh, this broader discussion is for uh, another time. But, you know, when we, when I look at my, my paycheck, and I look at my pay stub, and I look at all my bills, what's the number one expense I have? Taxes, Social Security taxes, uh, federal taxes, local, state, you know, on and on and on. Taxes is number one. Rent, then health care, two and three. There's something wrong when the, the money we all bring in as working Americans, our number one expense is not paying for shelter over our head. Our number one expense is not paying for food in our stomachs, which is expensive enough. Our number one expense is to pay the government what is they call their fair share, uh, it's highway robbery, it's theft. We pay for all this. We pay for them to take their trips. We pay for them to launch these investigations. We pay for them to hire special counsels. We pay for them to have secret service, many of them, for the rest of their lives. And it is about time we started to see a reverse. And President Trump has made some great um, uh, decisions so far as president. I do still, obviously, back President Trump. I back the agenda. Uh, more importantly, that he is pushing forward and the deep state is fighting against him at every turn in order to stop him from implementing his agenda. Now, I want to bring this up because this has been a, a topic of discussion because I believe a tweet the president put out today. Can President Donald Trump pardon himself? Can the president pardon him, pardon himself? Uh, legal minds out there alike are speculating and throwing their opinion 
as to exactly what can be done. If you remember back in, uh, 2016, even when, after the presidential election, when, uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, had lost and she kind of was out of the public spotlight for a while and President Trump was the president elect, we were all talking about the possibility of President Obama. Is he going to pardon Hillary Clinton? Even though that they came back with a, uh, you know, no charges, no crimes against her in uh, the FBI investigation, we were wondering, would he pardon Hillary Clinton? Will he pardon some of these other people? Could he pardon himself? And I remember the right was uh, up in arms, many of them saying, if he were to pardon, pardon himself, this, you know, it just proves how guilty he is and it would not be legal and on and on and on. So, under President Trump, those who had opinion about presidentials, presidents being able to pardon themselves, do you feel the same way about President Trump? Should he be able to pardon himself? Well, let's take a look at what some of the legal minds are saying. Could the president pardon himself for crimes? As this, and this is from uh, heavy.com. So take everything I'm about to read with a grain of salt, because I got one from heavy and I got one from PolitiFact, which, uh, yeah, just, I'm just doing this to cover some of what is being said out there. As he began his transition to the White House, U.S. President Donald Trump faced an obstacle no incoming president has ever faced before, a minefield of lawsuits, one including one scheduled to go to court November 28th, at which the president-elect may be forced to testify. That would be one, that would be one, the three lawsuits Trump, one of the three lawsuits Trump faces over fraud allegations stemming from uh, ownership of Trump University. Now, bear in mind, this article was from uh, January 2017. But anyway, let's get to the heart of the matter. Could the president, what they say here, uh, if he was to be convicted or, or charged with a crime, which we know he can't be charged with a crime as the president, the power of the presidential pardon to pardon criminal offenders in federal cases is spelled out in the United States Constitution, Article 2, which states the president shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. What that means is the president can pardon anyone for any reason without considering or consulting Congress or the judiciary. The power to grant pardons according to the Constitution belongs to the president alone. There are no restrictions on his authority to pardon criminal offenders, except that they must be accused or convicted or suspected of federal crimes, not state offenses. If a president issues a pardon to an alleged offender after that person might has been convicted, then whether penalties or sentences were handed down are immediately lifted and the recipient of those pardons become what one Supreme Court justice called a new man, free of that criminal conviction on his record. But, as past President Gerald Ford did for scandal-ridden President Nixon in 74, a president can also issue a pardon before a conviction or even if or even if as in Nixon's case no criminal charges had been filed at all so with nearly unlimited power of the presidential pardon in his hands could Trump issue a pardon to Trump the answer is yes the problem is there is no precedent as to whether a president can pardon himself that would pass the constitutional test simply because no president has ever tried it and again, Nixon was pardoned, uh, not, not by himself. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to find some of the arguments that many were making about the possibility of President Obama pardoning himself. And we'll compare that to what is being said today because we know the media is probably having a fit 
Uh, and I know this is one thing I like about the president. He likes to throw these things out there. Well, you know, maybe I'll pardon myself. Uh, maybe I'll testify in, in front of Mueller. Uh, maybe I'll sign amnesty for DACA. And I think it, it gets this react, well, I know it gets this reaction by the media. And the media just freaks out constantly. I mean, look what they did with this Samantha B issue. She said one of the most vile things about a presidential first daughter family member that you can say in a climate where people are being fired left and right for their political opinions, their religious beliefs, and sometimes inappropriate things they say. But look at what this hypocritical, liberally insane media has done with the Samantha B comments. While condemning Roseanne as some vile racist, you have people and this is also on HagmanReport.com. There's an article up here dealing with this. You have lawmakers. You have political pundits blaming President Trump. What are they saying? Oh, yeah, what Samantha B said? It's Trump's fault. Media critic on CNN. B's offensive comments are President Trump's fault. Trump's rhetoric drove Samantha B to attack Ivanka. Again, no surprise here. CNN on Brian Stelter, John's favorite show, Reliable Sources, one of the commentators on there, the political commentators, was asked about the C word that Samantha B. crudely used against Ivanka. Brian Stelter asked the critic if this was something that warranted a firing or what should be the punishment for her for calling the first daughter the C word. And the answer from this guys was the following remember trump's immigration policy that was what she was actually trying to talk about but it was all overshadowed by her profanity he griped calling the two situations very different stories stelter teed up democrat guest maria cardona to explain why conservatives were drawing a false equivalency between the two comedians remarks that being roseanne and that being samantha b but anyways, it goes on to say the president in the White House can still drive our rhetoric, the level that we have our national conversation at. You can see how Trump's rhetoric fed her and made her feel justified in her racism, talking about Roseanne. You can also see, in a way, how it drives someone like Samantha B to use that language. I'm not excusing her in any way, he says, and I'm not blaming him for this. But you can see how Trump's rhetoric drives people to do this so as he says he's not blaming her as he says there's no excuse for it he turns around and literally uh blames president trump for uh what samantha b said absolutely ridiculous and this is what we see with this media hypocrisy we saw we talked about this last week a, a very vocal twitter user who had remained anonymous on twitter till they were doxxed by a reporter luke o'brien got her husband fired from his job directed people to harass her brother's business and to to make it fail this is the insanity that we see with the media on the left they hate not the president they do hate the president but more so they hate what he represents and they hate who supports him these people are so anti-christian they hate Jesus so much that they will do any and everything they can in order to put these people in danger. And I know I went over the time. Eric, can we still take a break? 
right, we're gonna take we're gonna do this. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're gonna be uh, John's gonna be sitting on my side, and we're gonna be joined by Ashton Birdie to further talk about this issue of media insanity and hypocrisy in this terrible political climate. We'll be right back in two minutes. Welcome back to segment number two on this Monday edition of the Hagman Report this June 4th. I want to take your attention to HagmanReport.com. If you don't check the site regularly, if it's not bookmarked, go there, bookmark the site, and check it. Not only for uh, the important information that's up there as far as content, but also the promotions that we're running for Health Masters, uh, one of our sponsors, as well as Red Pill Expo. Coming up in just this month, in just three weeks now, the Red Pill Expo in Spokane, Washington, June 21st through the 23rd. If you use promo code HAGMAN, you get 15% off your tickets. Now, they were running a special for the last year's DVD, but you had to, to order your tickets in the month of May to get that. I'll check with Patrick and see if it is still available. But what you are going to get is just a, a whole host of awesome speakers. You can live stream. Uh, you can you can sign up and pay for live streaming. You can get standard admission, or you can get a VIP, excuse me, admission. And there you can uh, just, as Patrick said, you're going to walk away with your head so full of information that you're not going to know what to do with it. And these are people like G. Edward Griffin, uh, Lord Christopher Monkton, uh, David Knight from Infowars is going to be there. Patrick Wood, who's a frequent guest on our show. Uh, Debbie Bacigalupi, she's been on our show a number of times, and so many more. Just go to redpillexpo.org and check out the speakers uh, tab, and under there you'll see just the amazing, amazing talent that is going to be there. Representative Matt Shea, he's a, a representative from Washington State. I don't know how many times we've told this story. I think it was in 2012 we went to CPAC, my father and I, and we got to meet Represent Matt, Representative Matt Shea and actually got to tour Gettysburg with him. I don't even know if he remembers that. It was it was a while ago. But it's interesting to see his name on the list of speakers here. Again, Red Pill Expo, 21st through the 23rd. Go to HagmanReport.com. The banner's up on the top. Promo code HAGMAN gets you 15% off. That's for live streaming. That's for your tickets. So make sure you check that out. All right. Now, we covered um, Oh, Pat, Peter Chalka. He's going to be joining us tonight. He has two pieces up there as well. One, did Michelle Obama lobby ABC's TV president to fire Roseanne? This is an interesting interesting story. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to read into it as when he comes on today. He can get into this with us. But there are many different people talking about the possibility that forces outside of the TV industry use their power and influence in order to get the Roseanne show canceled. Pretty interesting. Also, he's got a piece up there. I, Sean Hannity, am the next target of the deep state. That, I mean, uh, Peter, it was a great article, and I know you're quoting Sean Hannity, but Sean, uh, come on, man. You're the next target. You've been the target for over the last year, year and a half. So it's only, <laughs> they didn't get you the first time. Of course, they're going to come back around and get you again, especially when you're crushing the uh, opponents in the ratings, in your time slot. And I don't know how many people saw this. On CNN, 
some new some new numbers came out on the viewership last week. I think it was last Thursday or Friday. CNN is pretty much one of the lowest ranked TV stations on TV. It did not even beat Home and Garden. Uh, it was ranked eighth or ninth or tenth or fifteenth. Who knows? But it didn't even it didn't even break a, a million in, in average uh, you know prime time viewers. Uh, during a certain time, it was in the 600, 800 thousands, but they lost 25% more of their audience. And all I have to say, CNN, let me tell you a little secret. This could save your network. Tell the truth. Don't hold back and tell the truth. You'll overtake not only all the alternative media, but all of cable media. But you can't do that, so. John, thanks for, uh, for filling in. I, I know, uh, I asked him, he was over there at his desk, I said, hey, John, he, and he had a hoodie on, he ripped his hoodie off, and there was a suit underneath it, and he came, and he <laughs> sat right down. So thanks for filling in, John. No, it's it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, greetings and God's blessings to everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us here on this Monday, June 4th. Uh, title of this evening's show, Joe, Tucson Goes Hot, uh, Sex Camp Discovered, or are we just looking at a homeless camp situation, and, and maybe some well-meaning veterans and, and, and people who are local there just trying to do the right thing, but maybe, and we're going to hear from Craig at 8.30 on this, maybe going as far, Joe, as to disrupt a, a federal investigation. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that caught my article or caught my eyes from Alicia's article was that the compartment where it was used to, to hold people, where they found uh, clothes and, and uh, you know, food stuff, uh, food wrappers and whatnot, yeah, Adults can't fit in there, so I, I don't think that uh, it was, you know, some kind of holdover for uh, an immigration uh, trafficking case. But we'll hear more with that uh, with with Craig uh, at eight thirty. I want to bring on a, a debut guest. She is ti- <laughs> she is titled. Her name is Ashton Birdie, and you guys got to excuse us. It's Monday. There's chaos here <laughs> in the Hagman Studios, uh, so we're just gonna have fun with it today. And, uh, you know, if we screw up a little, we screw up a little, but just bear with us. So Ashton Birdie is uh, uh, a millennial activist and journalist from Berkeley, California. She wasn't executed. She didn't get burned at the stake. I don't know how she made it out. But she's currently traveling worldwide reporting on authoritarian government policies. She's advocating for free speech, less government control, and is a vocal leader in what she calls the punk rock generation. Ashton can be found at Ashton Birdie on Twitter as well as on YouTube, Ashton Birdie. And she's got a nice subscription base there. Ashton, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thank you for having me. Well, it's nice to meet you. It's it's great to have you. John is sitting in with me. We had some last-minute changes. Uh, my, my father, Doug, could not be here. He is in studio, but he's not with us. And I want to welcome you to the show. So how would you make it out of Berkeley alive? Um, so I was actually born and raised in Berkeley. My entire family, uh, if you didn't know, is pretty much socialist and so I think growing up what it really was is despite the fact my grandfather was a classic liberal I also grew up in the uh, generation as I said before is the punk rock generation which is really the generation that listened to a lot of punk rock music did not like listen to authority and essentially uh, did not like to hear word no so it was really interesting for me when the presidential election came out to see a lot of the people that I grew up with. I was in a band in high school. I played the drums, and a lot of my friends were the same sort of um, down-with-the-establishment type. And it was really interesting how these people wanted people like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, which was really interesting to me because these people were advocating for more government control, more uh, uh, things for the establishment. Yeah. And so it was 
you know, it was kind of my wake up call when I realized something was going on. And so I really got more involved with that and really advocating for less government, more free speech issues, especially with the Milo Yiannopoulos event at UC Berkeley. And eventually I got attacked at a free speech event for holding a sign that said, let's have a conversation. And ever since I've been making YouTube videos, because I feel like there's a lot to be said about what's going on in America, uh, the world actually. And I, I think a lot of people are really misinformed to when it comes to government control. So who do you offend by uh, having a sign that said, let's have a conversation, mutes or uh, uh, people who are, can't <laughs> read? I mean, wh- where, does that, where does that anger come from? I, I think it comes from people who they really, I, I, I'm not sure where it comes from, actually. I, I feel like I felt like let's have a conversation was perfect at the time. Okay, whether you're on the left or the right, you can't really argue with let's have a conversation. Everyone wants to have a conversation. At least they should. Conversations, debate, discussion really is what leads to helping make America great again. I mean, we all want to have a discussion to better the world, right? Everybody wants America and the world to be a better place. And the best thing to do is have a discussion. I would rather have a discussion with somebody of a different idea than force them to live the same way I want to. Uh, so I'm not really sure why someone would be offended by let's have a conversation. So that's exactly why I started a YouTube channel to kind of call out this hypocrisy, but more so really delve into the truth that is uh, government uh, control. And so, you know, when I first started YouTube, I was more so on the right. Granted, I, I'm more, you know, I, I don't like calling somebody... I don't like calling myself a libertarian, but I'm definitely more uh, nuanced than I was before. I think it's really important for people to do these things, to have discussions, because because I kind of went out into the world and had discussions over these sort of issues. I am more nuanced than I used to be. Um, but I really, really, really am afraid that a lot of people are not going to do that. They'd want to, you know, believe that it's my way or the highway, and that really is what's going to dig our country into the ground. You're, you're absolutely right. And I want to ask you this. You mentioned, uh, the Milo. We saw a number of just fantastic and, and troublesome, uh, graphics coming out of Berkeley. Not more, I mean, more than once. Uh, the, I think the Milo was the one where innocent people who were protesting started getting hit, uh, and pepper sprayed and. Yeah, that, that was, uh, February 2017. Yeah. February 2017. And, and that was, uh, when we started hearing this term black block. Remember black block? And, uh, there were fires and, and Ashton, ironically, this happened in the literal, physical, geographical epicenter of the free speech movement. Uh, I was actually, it was really funny because growing up in Berkeley, um, they would bring speakers who were actually free speech movement to our classrooms and talk about how great free speech was and throw up and then Hey, Ashton. I'm sorry. Uh, that your your the last uh, t- 15 seconds of that was pretty garbled. I'm going to see if uh, Tech Eric can reconnect with you because it's really important. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, you know, we did not really talk to anybody who went to Berkeley or who was in Berkeley at the time that these uh, conservative speakers were being shut down one after the other. And not only were they being shut down, but the police were told to stand down and they allowed students to riot they allowed students to start fires they allow i mean if you remember the optics there were i remember one specific uh, video 
of a younger woman, I think she had blonde hair, in a red Make America Great Again hat. She's giving an interview to uh, some news organization. And as she's giving an interview, somebody comes up and sprays her right in the face with pepper spray. Yeah, it was like a sucker punch with pepper yeah, spray. And just Joe, a little poor woman. She was, uh, if memory serves, she was uh, a fairly prominent leader of an LGBT uh, organization. She she was she was to one degree yeah. or another sociologically, you know, one of them. And Joe, the other thing I'd like to toss in here before we bring Ashton back on is, what about the uh, the the systematic, almost militaristic manner that that the black bloc, what we now know as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, etc., the way they operated? They had uh, they had a, a team with fire extinguishers, a team with fireworks, M80s and, and, and explosives, mm-hmm. and they had a team who cut the zip ties on the barricades and then used them as battering rams, and those barricades ultimately went through the glass of uh, Sproul Hall. Yeah, it, very troubling, and to see that, you know, what we saw with the uh, continuation of shutting down conservative speakers, not just in Berkeley, but all across the country, and not just at universities. We saw it most recently with Brandon House in his free tour uh, warning about the dangers of radical Islam and the merging of of is, uh, Islam and, and America and, and the Catholic Church, he has been shut down uh, by a number of organizations just because they're threatening violence, and that's enough to get him shut down. Okay, we have Ashton uh, Birdie back with us. We were talking about the the uh, shutting down of free speech, shutting down of the conservative speech. Let me ask you this, Ashton: Do you think that that uh, by by the the protesters shutting down the speech, do you think that think that brought more attention and more fans to people like Milo and to the the conservative speakers on the right? She's still having issues. Okay, well, if we can, let's bring her on by phone, uh, if possible, so we can at least get a, the last ten <laughs> minutes in with her. But one thing, one one thing she wanted to talk about: why is the republic why the Republican Party is not appealing to millennials? Why isn't the Republican Party appealing to anybody? I would say that's a great question. I'm an independent. I'm registered a Republican specifically because when Donald Trump was running for president, I wanted to be able to vote in the primary, in the Republican primary. But I'm an independent at heart. I could care less. I have no political affiliation. I believe both parties are corrupt to the core. But when you have a candidate like President Trump, when you have a president like President Trump, who will be a Republican candidate again, and you've already tossed his hat in the ring, you have this huge movement of people behind him who never would identify as, as Republicans before or supported a quote-unquote Republican. Why is it that, is it their hate for President Trump and his supporters? Is it because they think he's, you know, such such a, uh, a wrong t- kind of person to be in politics, to be in government, that they can't wrap around the, the Trump, Trump agenda, Trump supporters, and, you know, uh, add to their own base? It, it seems like there's a split. With, we always talk about the unification in message on the left and on the progressives. They're unified across the board. They all hate uh, Christians. They they all love transgenders. And uh, we don't have that unification on the right. What we have are people who support Trump and the never-Trumpers. And that's how the Republican Party is divided. And it seems like the Trump supporters far outweigh the rhino, neocon-type Republicans uh, that are opposing what is happening in their party now. And thank God for that. Uh, Joe, I want to share with our, our listeners and viewers uh, something that uh, I had a really uh, productive conversation with Tracy Beans today. And we discussed a number of things, uh, but one of the things that, that she 
educated me on, frankly, was this really simple concept. Okay, we, we talk every day about draining the swamp. And, Joe, this t obviously ties into the rhinos, the never-Trumpers. And the, the, right now, draining the swamp uh, is almost, think of it like the, the drain, the drain plug, is about the size of a quarter. It's, it's, it's the draining of the swamp is bottlenecked at the right. bottom where the swamp needs to drain. Right. And, uh. Like I trying to drain an ocean with a teaspoon. Absolutely. And, and, or, or, or pour, you know, 10 gallons into a funnel with a little teeny tiny spigot. And what Tracy indicated to me, and I thought this was really good analysis, was what needs to happen is all of the leverage that DC operates off of the quote unquote having the goods on your opponent. Okay, DC operates off of information and who has what on who. That leverage, those little uh, points of contact, I think that McCabe and Comey are good examples of this. That those pieces of leverage need to be knocked out. They need the, that the support mechanisms need to be destroyed, so that these entities, these corrupt individuals and their their organizations like the Clinton Foundation and the DNC, need to be standing alone without support. And then President Trump comes in knocks them out yeah that's right and uh we're going to talk with our our next guest about this about the importance of of uh being involved at, in the local level and what we can do on the local and state levels but the republican party is not adapting to the trump movement the trump agenda and what's going to happen say president trump wins runs again in 2020 we know the republican rhinos are already talking about putting a primary candidate up against the president so you'll have to you know he'll have to win the primary first which would just be a waste of time and money on their part because there's no way they're going to bring out a candidate that people are going to be more excited about rather than president trump so with that you know we'll just say they're not going to do that when, when whenever trump is done being president whether it's 2020 or 2024 what is the republican party going to do or they already are in the midst of an identity crisis they hate the president they especially hate who what and who he stands for and we're never going to have another candidate like this again unless they run as an independent and uh that m never works running as an independent because it's a two-party system and none of us are invited and this is another thing we were going to talk to ashton about and if we can't get her back on because i see we only got about six and a half seven minutes left We'll just uh, we'll have to reschedule her for another slot that we have open in this week because I really want to hear what she has to say. Uh, she had some she has some tremendous insights and folks, you can um, in the meantime while you're if she doesn't come back on this segment while you're waiting for her to come back on the show, Ashton Birdie on YouTube. That's A S H T O N B I R D I E or at Ashton Birdie on Twitter. And again, you know the the two party system. Uh, they, it's done for a reason. They they want to be able to control the uh, people who are able to be the the leaders. And this is one election where they were not able to do that. I don't, I don't know how many people. I'm sure a lot of people remember this because it was on a, a clip um, compilation of the 2016 presidential election. But Ann Coulter was on the Bill Maher show back before the Republican primaries. I think back before even the first Republican primary debates. And she was asked, out of the 16 presidential, uh, on, on the right, the 16 presidential candidates, who was going to win the primary? And she said, Donald Trump. And if you remember the reaction the audience had, and the people who were on the show, the panel, they laughed hysterically. They thought it was such a big joke. 
and here we are uh, years later, and he is the president. And the Republican Party having an identity crisis, why can't they appeal to Trump voters? Is it just they, they hate him so much, they hate what he represents so much, which is more of a Republican agenda than any candidate they could have offered, whether it's Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush? <laughs> I don't know, John. They're, 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 there's no better time than now for them, Amen. for the Republican Party, and they're doing all the wrong things. Well, Joe, let's let's consider this. Uh, uh, Ashton Birdie is a definitely a worthwhile guest, and we've had some technical difficulties, but we will hammer them out. And, and I hope that our listeners and viewers are being patient with us tonight, because I'm having fun. It's like a clown car in here. Uh, but we can Ashton... Try again. Okay. Ashton Joe likes to say uh, a great sign-off catchphrase, and we have her back. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and she likes to say, and she looks right in the camera, and she says, love thy country, hate thy government. And I love that little yeah. sign-off phrase because remember, listeners and viewers, all of those bumper stickers that say, I love my country, but I fear my government. And where were they? They were slapped on the bumpers of liberals' cars. Ashton, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Sorry about the audio and technical difficulties. We only got about six minutes left in this interview. We're definitely going to bring you back on, but let's just uh, jump right into this. We were talking about off-air. Uh, the Republican Party is not m- appealing to millennials. The Republican Party is not even appealing to Trump supporters. And with the majority of Trump supporters overwhelming, uh, you know, the, the other uh, the other side of the Republican Party, is the Republican Party having a, an identity crisis, one, and two? Why is it, is, it, is it not appealing to millennials? You know, I have to say it, and I, I really don't like saying it, because I used to be a huge fan of the Republican Party, because I thought they were what they claimed to be less government. But the truth is, the Republican Party is the same exact thing as the Democratic Party, and I think it's really important that we start advocating for less political parties and more for individual ideas, because the thing is, the reason millennials love Bernie Sanders is because he didn't call himself a Democrat. He advocated based on different ideas. For example, things like free education, free health care. But of course, these ideas are not, you know, exactly um, probable. Uh, so I think it's really important that we do teach people based on individual ideas. We teach people based on uh, values, morals, uh, what is best for our economic system. Because the thing is, if we just hound people with Republican Party bumper stickers, it's not really going to get anything done. It's not going to spread our message. Because the thing is, all people are going to, you know, see is the, the, the basic old rich white men, the party of the old rich white men. And I think it's really important we understand that the Republican Party to me is, I, I don't really like to call myself a Republican anymore because, yeah. because, because they are exactly like the Democratic Party. I think a lot of millennials as I said before, I, I call myself the punk rock generation because we grew up in a generation listen to punk rock music, we don't like authority, and we want to sustain our own lives. And the thing is, is that I, I think it's really important that we teach these kids to not follow a party, but follow a system that is for the people, that is pro-America without pro-government. Amen. You know, Ashton, uh, it reminds me of a, a brilliant piece by uh, by uh, uh, Paul Joseph Watson over at Infowars about uh, a year ago. Uh, conservatism is the new punk rock, and you make an excellent point. It's like we have a group of people in this country who really just want to live their lives and spend the money we earn, but we have another group of people. <clears throat> pardon me who feel that they have the right to invade in our lives and to to inform us how we will educate our kids, how we will spend our money, and even what we're going to bring content-wise on programs like the Hagman Report. Uh, I heard some commentary over the weekend uh, uh, that went something like this. Our 
our generation, mine and yours, are like an audience at a concert who is no longer there for the music. We're just there to applaud and scream at the stage. My question to you, and we're definitely bringing you back soon, dear, but my question to you, have we become a society that's just ripping off headlines? Are, are we no longer people who actually read news? Or like you said, let's have a conversation. It seems to me like Twitter has just become a battleground of uh, ripping at each other with headlines that may or may not be true. You know, that metaphor is absolutely perfect because if you look at the statistics on it, lyrics of music have died down. They have dumbed down just the same way as news articles have. People are more obsessed with the catchy music than they are the lyrics, as they are more obsessed with the headlines and not the actual content. I think it really shows, us, it really proves that society has dumbed themselves down, has become lazy, and is not willing to learn what is happening in their country. I think the government loves this. The government loves the fact that their society is dumbed down and lazy because it makes it easier to control what they learn. Journalism, the re reason mainstream media journalism is so praised by the elites is because it is spreading the same message the elitists want. That is why I advocate all the time for alternative media, just because instead of pushing what the government wants you to hear, journalism is says being used as something that people need to hear. Yeah, and it, it's uh, it's really unfortunate. And, and again, back to the Republican Party, it just seems like they are going to lose their last opportunity to uh, get to gain the support of the Trump supporters, especially when they're working against uh, the president's agenda. Nobody who supports they're good, people who support Trump are going to remember that. And the next time that we get a, a president in there who isn't one of these establishment Republicans or, God forbid, is like a Hillary Clinton progressive, this country is going to it's not going to be the same ever again. Obama, you know, started it. Uh, not, I shouldn't say started it. It was started a long time ago. Obama accelerated it. They wanted another, uh, <laughs> acceleration under Hillary Clinton and thankfully the president was able to stop that. Let me ask you this. The 2018 midterm elections, do you think the American people are going to vote? Do you think they understand that they have, that if they vote for the left, that the left gets control of the House and Senate, that there's going to be an impeachment? Do you think they know that much? You know what? I absolutely think they do. And it's funny because when I look at midterm election posts, it's always people on the right talking about it. And so I really think that we are advocating more than ever. We are really advocating for something to help this country. I think people need to start paying attention. We need to get those people in office to fight people like Nancy Pelosi and crazy Maxine Waters. Because if <laughs> yeah. these people stay any longer in office, for example, I'm from California. The idea of having Jerry Brown still in office drives me insane. It, it, it makes me depressed. I don't want the idea of California falling victim to what it already has become. No, you're exactly right, and that's, and that's what it is falling into. The two-party system, the, the left and the right, how can we uh, use this time with this populist movement? Do you, you think it's possible we could launch a third party, that we could get enough support behind it, that we would not have to rely on this two-party system? You know, I'm against parties altogether, honestly. I think we need to vote on individual ideas because that's how Trump won. Trump is not a Republican. I think it's very important right. we realize that Trump is not a Republican. He is Trump. But that is exactly why he won. And we are lucky enough to see that I have met so many liberals who have voted for Trump because he's Trump. He, he, he did not run as a Republican or a Democrat. He ran as someone the people wanted. And so I think we really need to, when we look at these elections, to look for something that speaks individualism and different ideas. For example, I have so much respect 
for so many libertarians and classic liberals on within this quote-unquote movement. I hate that word. I'm sorry to use it, but I can't really think of anything else than I do for a lot of people on the right because I feel like they are willing to compromise and understand why we vote. We need both leftist and right-wing ideas because the thing is, it's not about the left or the right. It's about the people versus the establishment. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this in, in the closing minutes. We know here, thankfully, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, which protects speech, all speech, hate speech, and popular speech. What we saw with Tommy Robinson in the U.K., and uh, due to him exposing you know, what they were doing, the, the grooming, uh, using the uh, charge as an excuse, in my opinion, to put him in jail, do you think we're going to see those types of tactics used here in America? Do you think we'll ever get to a point where speech is uh, able to be uh, prosecuted or you can get in trouble no longer having a First Amendment? Well, the thing is with free speech, I definitely think it's under attack in America. Our, our gun rights have always been under attack so much in America, but free speech is definitely one of the ones they're attacking right now. When you see things like PC culture and hate speech, these are merely tools to control what we can say and what we can do. Tommy Robinson was put away for 13 months in jail based on a suspension that should only have been three months. Granted, I am against the suspension completely. He should have never gotten suspended for reporting on grooming gangs. Mind you, a reporting ban went out against him where people, the citizens couldn't even talk about it. So it's it's really interesting to see. I think people need to pay attention once in the UK. I'll actually be in London next week at the protest. But I think people really need to start paying attention to what happens in Europe because everything from free speech to immigration to education Whatever happens there happens here. And so we really need to pay attention. We really need to fight against that. Amen. Ashton Birdie is our Amen. guest. Ashton, we only got about a minute left. Tell people where they can find you. Promote anything that you got going on that, that you want people to know about, any videos you've done or interviews you've done that you want people to be, to be focused on. Uh, the, the last minute's all yours. And she's going to be in London this oh, yeah. weekend yeah. at the big rally. I am. I am. So my name is Ashton. I am Ashton Birdie on YouTube and Twitter. It's A-S-H-T-O-N-B-I-R-D-I-E. And I'm currently working on a, a few future projects I can't quite reveal, but I will be in London for the protest uh, once in June and once in July. Uh, you can find the dates on my Twitter. I'll post it somewhere. But I'll be in London in June and July, and I'll be in Washington, D.C. at the end of June for a Virginia uh, Women for Trump event, we'll be revealing the next MAG address. So um, I hope to see everybody there. Well, that's awesome. And again, you can follow uh, her on uh, at Twitter at Ashton Birdie A S S A S H T O T O N B I R D I E. Ashton, I want to thank you so much for for your time. I'm sorry it was cut short with the technical issues. I hope we can uh, schedule you to come back here in in the very near future, maybe when you get back from London, uh, because we'd of like course. to do another full segment with you. You got a lot uh, a lot to share, and we want we want to hear back from you. So yeah, please accept our invitation back, and and John will be in touch with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and you be safe in your travels. Thank you. All right, fantastic interview, John. What an That's awesome a guest. <laughs> great, can't ask for a better debut guest than that. I mean, no, uh, right on the top of the list there, and we're definitely going to bring her back. Kind of gives you hope for the millennials. You it know? does. It get, does. Get her and Min King on the same team. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm a, a labeled a millennial because I was born in '83, and what, what is it between '82 and and Eighty-nine, something like that. Wait, wait, wait! Doesn't it depend on who your parents are? Like, if your parents are a boomer, <laughs> uh, help us out here, listeners. Studio at HagmanReport.com. 
is it by years or does it depend? Like if my dad's a baby boomer, then I'm a Gen X or even See, if I was born yesterday. My dad, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. Okay, a millennial. <laughs> um, okay. Well, yeah, it's from uh, 82 to, uh, I believe, 89. But either way. There are many millennials who are not what you see, the snowflake, you know, the uh, safe space, uh, living in your parents' basement, never wanting to, uh, you know, go out and explore the world, always wanting to be protected and not be offended. But, you know, in reality, uh, those terms, you know, the Generation X, the, the baby boomers, the, the baby boomers, I think, is really the last definable generation with the two world wars. And, uh, you know, that's when America really started to, uh, get into this place of, of complacency where we're at, where it was from, you know, building and surviving to, to now, uh, you know, many people seem to have so much free time on their hands and, and where they're looking to institute this utopian society that the philosophers have dreamt about, uh, for thousands of years, all part of this spiritual plan that we are, uh, you know, in, in part of now. And we are living in very interesting times as we see, uh, just the, constant change and constant uh, craziness in our world both in the UK and the US and the Middle East from natural disasters to wars to civil wars to uh, you know people going crazy over what other people believe and say and if you're a Christian now you know you're basically banned from society this is the atmosphere that we live in this constant chaos but hopefully to bring some sense to this is another debut guest that we have his name is Carl Alfred and uh, this is going to be a very interesting segment. Carl, I'm going to just bring you on right off the bat. Uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulties with our previous guest. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Wow. Well, thank you for having me on, by the way. Well, thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a nice, long, and uh, a fruitful road that I've traveled here. But uh, we're at a we're at a we're at a very different time right now. All of us are at a very different time. We know what the the problems are. We've identified most of the crimes, and we've identified most of the criminals. But what we haven't done is figured out what to do with what we have. And that's that's where I've been focused as of late. And when I say as of late, for the past, ooh, I want to say. Two years, and I'll start it off uh, basically with a very curious coincidence. Okay. It was on July 6th of 2016. On that day, James Comey got on the air and, in effect, gave Hillary Clinton a pass for her crimes. America was aghast. That very same evening, Myself and my good friend, former judge and former police chief Paul Nally, traveled to the Clayton County Board of Commissioners meeting where I had already gathered the criminal information concerning three of the commissioners and the district attorney for that county. I did a citizen's arrest of the three commissioners. Paul Nally did the arrest of the district attorney. And we immediately turned them over to the police chief who was there at the commissioner's meeting. We went out to the foyer and met with the police chief, who dutifully informed us that 
he was not going to take them into custody. He was not going to do his job and take them to the magistrate, which is exactly the sequence of events that the law tells us should be followed. So I say this because that opened up the, 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 the floodgates for me and for Paul. We know that what we are doing is trying to get criminal allegations before the county grand jury because it presses upon their present service. We have the law on our side. There's nothing to prevent us from legally not barging in or anything like that. There's nothing to prevent us from going to the grand jury area at the courthouse and on that day presenting an envelope to the bailiff addressed to the grand jury foreman. Now it is that bailiff's duty to take that directly to the grand jury foreman. Well, guess what? They have other, they have other uh, um, directives. And those directives are that anytime anyone tries to gain access to the grand jury, it must first go through the district attorney. And they will tell you that the district attorney is the gatekeeper. There's a big difference between the gatekeeper and the lawbreaker because by them stepping in and intercepting any communications meant for the grand jury foreman, they are in turn breaking federal law. Wow. And that's where, that's, that's where we're at right now. We have all of the laws that have been broken by the DAs, by the uh, people involved, and all we need is our day figuratively and literally in court. And the court is the grand jury. Now, my, many people, many people have, uh, have tried to gain access. But typically what happens is they try once, the, the district attorney uh, runs interference, and they say, oh, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> well, nah, that's not going to work with us either because we're not going to let this, we're not going to let this die. This is the new frontier. This is our place within the system of justice. It's the only place we have to go within the system of justice where people, our people, are involved in not only judging um, the veracity of the evidence presented, but also the laws themselves. And that, my friend, is why they are so adamantly against us ever, ever setting foot inside that grand jury room. Yeah. We have. Go ahead. No, you're you're exactly right in how corrupted our institutions of justice and politics and everything has become. It, it's such a crime, and it's all part of you know the the uh, the communist manifesto, the uh, whatever you want to call it, the new world order, the, this plan to undermine uh, what was once the greatest uh, government in the history of the world, and they have almost fully corrupted it. And you're right. I mean, what, what are, what can the people do? And you just laid out a great example, but what can the people do? It seems that the local level, the state level, and the federal level are all working together in this corruption. What? Well, let is me, left? let me explain something to you. Okay. 
Many people, many people think that uh, the, the reach of the grand jury is limited to the county in which they are convened. <laughs> and that couldn't be further from the truth. Let me take for an example. The Let's just take the Hillary Clinton case. We know that crimes were, were, were committed. But who, who were those crimes committed against? Who was the victim? Well, the, the, the answer, people and the government. We're all, the we're all the victim. Everybody in the nation is the victim of those crimes. Therefore, those crimes and everything underneath fall upon the present service of any currently seated grand jury. Now, you ask, uh, you ask, okay, so you've been, you've been denied. What are you going to do now? Well, folks, let me tell you this. What Paul and I are, are the new breed of resolutionaries. That's what we are. That's what we're going to do. And we're not going to stop until we succeed. How are we going to succeed? Okay, there are a few options available. One is to have a crime so despicable, so disgusting, and so insightful that once the people get wind of it, they will want, no, they will demand that these crimes be laid at the feet of this grand jury. And it will take the people. That's what I'm working on right now. Because there's no way, there's no way that I can uh, now legally approach them in any different fashion than I've been doing. And let me tell you what that fashion is for those who would like to try. The first thing is you would go ahead and put forth a uh, request to your district attorney to present evidence to the grand jury telling them that the crimes that you allege do press upon their present service. You don't have to tell them what the crimes are, but therein lies the first problem, because the DA, not knowing what you're going to present, is going to be very, very nervous. And he will talk to you. And he will try and get you to tell him what those crimes are. And if you do not, he will dutifully break the law and prevent you from presenting your information to the grand jury. That's step one. Step two, you can go to the meeting room for the grand jury on the day that they convene, and you can present an envelope with your allegations or with a more general idea that there are allegations to addressed to the grand jury foreman. You hand it to the bailiff. You don't try and walk in. You don't try and do anything out of the legal realm. You do what is legally right. And that message should, in fact, go directly to the jury foreman. And when it does not, voila, two times the DA has now intercepted using mail fraud, for one, to stop you and prevent you from gaining access. The next step is a more direct approach, and that, that requires a little research. You literally have to go down to the courthouse, and you can find a current case that the grand jury has uh, issued a, uh, a true bill on, 
and in that you will find the grand jury foreman who has to sign off on it. A little more research will show you who that grand jury foreman is in your locale, and you send a um, you send a uh, return receipt requested letter to that person's address with the information. Those are the steps that you can take, and there's only one other that can be can be tried, and I'm not there yet. I don't want to do that yet until I get back. I'm right now. I'm out in out in the on the left coast, but <laughs> I want to tell you that the other way is to do a uh, um, uh, what do they call that? A service provider? Uh, someone who? Some, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's someone who is uh, specifically employed to uh, serve papers on people. Okay and you get them to serve the, these papers to the, directly to the grand jury foreman. Now, this breaks, should that be uh, ignored, that breaks a whole new set of laws. Now, and I fully expect that that's what would happen. <laughs> so, where, where, would, where would that leave us? That would leave us where we have but one choice left. And I, when I say one choice left, I, I want you to, I want to make sure that you understand the implications of what we're talking about here. Because this is our legal system, not theirs. We made all of this possible. We yep. provided all of the uh, buildings. We provide all of the resources necessary for them to enforce our laws. And the fact that they decide not to, comes with a cost. And that cost, my friend, eventually winds up being us reaching towards the Second Amendment for resolution. Now, I'm not there. I'm not there. I am doing everything humanly possible. Paul and I are both doing everything humanly possible to avoid that eventuality because that's exactly where this leads if they want to follow it to its normal logical conclusion they're going to have that choice that's what we're giving them there are federal crimes that have been committed here and yes we can take those federal crimes yes we can go to the federal try and get it to the federal grand jury or the federal DA yes we can do that but everybody knows how the federal DOJ works these days so the conclusion is going to be a foregone one, because you and I both know they are not going to eat their own. So, we get back to what is it that we can do that is going to cause them to say, okay, we will stand down. That, my friend, is when we the people stand shoulder to shoulder in numbers that they cannot and will not ignore with and in tow media because we're not going to let them off of the hook ever again and we show up at that courthouse with a hundred with a two hundred with a thousand people because they want their law back they want what is rightfully theirs they want what their true entitlement is, and that is to have equal justice under the law. That's the fight. That's what we're doing. 
And that's why we cannot and will not stop until success is ours. Because our success is your success, every one of you. Absolutely very well said, Carl. And I, and I want to ask you this. Uh, you know, you're right on the money with the steps we need to take, what we need to do in order to, to gain back our freedoms and our, and our country and our constitution. But let me ask you this. When the majority of the people seem to be content in their own selfish little bubble, uh, what, what, what's it going to take to get people organized to that level where they're able to come together and make a difference? Uh, are we going to well, have to, you know, have the internet cut off? I mean, or is it going to be an individual thing where until it affects a person individually, they'll be willing to do something that then it will be too late. How do we, how do we organize and make people get, help people get involved in this when we still have a chance to fight back? Okay. Here's, here's the biggest problem we face. It's very, very difficult to get people motivated to do anything, as you know. So the big secret is going to be to find that one thing, that one issue that is so overwhelmingly motivating that they cannot, they cannot sit on their duff anymore. And we have one. We have one that is going to be used real soon. And that has to do with uh, something that you guys have been talking a lot about. You've been talking a lot about this to someone called Honeybee, the Honeybee. Yeah, I'm sure. You, I'm sure your your audience is well aware of her. As a matter of fact, I'm out here in L.A. right now with her team, and uh, we're going to be going to a showing of the A Child's Voice, which is getting its premiere on Wednesday night. To that end, what one of the researchers, Heather and Honeybee, have been able to uncover in my jurisdiction, my area, Heather's area, is we found a catch-and-release program going with pedophiles. The catch-and-release has to do with those in positions of authority and positions of profit and trust when they are given a pass with clear, undeniable evidence that they have committed these pedophilia, pedosadist, pedivore crimes, and they are in the neighborhood of your friends, your relatives, your uh, acquaintances, then it's incumbent upon you to make sure that these people know exactly what's going on in their neighborhood. And if they can't, if they can't rise up, stand up for the children of their county, my friend, it might well be lost. But I don't believe it. I don't believe that's so. I believe that we have good, honest, moral people that will stand for the kids, stand for and against the traffickers and stand with those who would pursue this in the rightful manner. And the rightful manner is to get this before a grand jury because I'm telling you one thing, from the first time this happens, Katie bar the doors, everything is fair game. Everything from the federal down to the city level. That's what we're up against and that's what we're doing. 
Well said, Carl Alfred. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining us this evening as a debut guest and really just stepping in and sending one over the deep uh, center field wall. Uh, let's uh, let's throw a little levity into the mix here this evening, Carl. I know you and I had a, sure. a pleasant a pleasant chat uh, yesterday evening. Uh, tell us about uh, the pitchforks and the torches. Uh, we use that cliche often. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but you took that to the next uh, level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was back in 2012, and that was just prior to the uh, Obama re-election. You see, what happened there was uh, a few of us here in Georgia actually went the distance and put forth a ballot challenge to Obama's eligibility, which, by the way, still has not been determined. And if you are anyway believing what uh, the research that I can confirm has shown is that this person who was allowed to assume the highest office in the land was never vetted worse. We don't know exactly who he was. So I think there was like one, two, three, I think there was four of us that put forth the ballot challenge. And that meant that the um, um, the campaign or the people representing Obama, in this case it was Perkins Coy, and they still represent him. And uh, let's see, Hillary Clinton too, by the way. Well, they were served, and there was a date certain for an administrative hearing. Now, this is very important, folks, very, very important. This wasn't in a court of law. This was an administrative hearing, which is no court at all, but it has all the trappings of being a court. The judge, in this case, selected by, uh, I hate to say this, (laughs) the guy who's running for governor right now, and uh, <laughs> he uh, he set this up. Brian Kemp is his name. I uh, I will pretty much never forgive him that for that, but I will still try and get him in there because he is as guilty as sin. Why? Because the judge that he selected to hear this at the administrative court was none other than one Michael Malihi. Now, who's Michael Malihi, you might ask? He just happens to be somebody from Iran. Well, guess what? We had all of these, all of these people representing us, lawyers, and we had an ironclad case to, to lay before this judge, and uh, we had empty seats for where the defense counsel was supposed to be. They didn't show up. And if you know anything about court proceedings, that means that uh, they're in default. Now, we were ready to proceed, and one took it all the way up to the Georgia Supreme Court, and the courts dutifully dismissed everything. But Michael Malihi, a former, or, or an, or an Iranian judge, doing this administrative court, heard all the evidence, and ruled in favor of the empty seats. How egregious can you get? <laughs> well, so, wow. uh, so, uh, so what was I going to do? Um, I had a bit of a following, and still do, but I put forth the call from all over. Okay, folks, it's time. 
It's time for the classic pitchforks and torches rally. Meet me at the Capitol on this date certain, and we will make our voices heard. I had all kinds of people emailing emailing me, blogging me, and all this. Oh, yeah, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. (laughs) It was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, even the Capitol was was really concerned about this. They had blocked off the streets expecting a massive rally. It didn't happen. I had 14 yeah. people show up. Four, Carl, uh, 14, with pitchforks and torches, by the way. <laughs> Carl, we, we got only about one minute left. Where can uh, people find you? Uh, your, your website, scannedretina.com. You're also on YouTube and Facebook as well. Yes. Uh, most of my stuff is, is carried now by one Arnie Rosner, who created the scannedretina.com. That's S-C-A-N-N-E-D. R-E-T-I-N-A dot com. You will find across the top tabs, you will find a, uh, well, one tab for me, and that's all of, all of the things that I have been involved with over the years. So, you'll also, if you go to my YouTube, Carl, space, Alfred, you will find videos of actually when we did the citizen's arrest at the Clayton County, uh, Board okay. of Commissioners. Uh, all of that stuff is there. And if you really want just uh, to, to, to lighten things up a little bit, you'll find uh, a, a couple of videos from my uh, rescue of a, of, a, of a poor squirrel. And <laughs> Carl, where we are, I apologize, we're out of time. Carl Alfred is his name. You can find him on YouTube at Carl Alfred or scannedretina.com. Carl, we hope you come back. Thank you so much for your time. We'll be right back after these short messages. Don't go anywhere. Now the segment you've all been waiting for. We're going to be joined by Craig the Sawman Sawyer to break down this Tucson, Arizona issue and what's going on. Again, you go to the Gateway Pundit. Alicia Powell has a great article up. We're going to get into that in just a second. But first, want to, while we're bringing Craig on, want to bring your attention to this. Democratic lawmaker says it looks like Zuckerberg lied to Congress. A Democratic congressman hammered Facebook and its CEO Zuckerberg following a report that the company is sharing large amounts of its users' data with other companies. Sure looks like Zuckerberg lied to Congress about whether users have complete control over what sees or uh, what data Facebook sees, Representative David Sicilian tweeted on Sunday. Too bad Zuckerberg wasn't under oath. He could have lied all he wanted to. What 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 can you do to him? You never put him under oath. Well, maybe they were maybe they were having a a shortage of uh, oath taking that that particular <laughs> month, Joe, because of course Diamond and Silk were uh, yeah. were placed under oath, and and I'll paraphrase uh, Rochelle Richardson, who basically said, why why were we under oath? You had Zuckerberg who 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 uses our content, sells our data to the highest bidder. He's not under oath. We're not anywhere near the status as Mark Zuckerberg, but but Joe, we are. Mm-hmm. And there you go. That's why he wasn't put under oath because we know. He was not going to be completely forthright, and they didn't want to have to go back and, you know, have him have a criminal record for lying under oath and committing perjury, so they didn't put him under oath, and it's as simple as that. And if you remember, many of the people asking him questions received, uh, I think there was over close to $700,000 combined uh, with these people who were questioning Zuckerberg, some of them. So 
uh, definitely can tell where their motivations <laughs> lie. Okay, so that would be like if if we got a stipend for every guest we bring on. Like, come on on to the Hagman Report, <laughs> yeah. and we won't put you under oath, although with, with some of the stuff we cover, maybe we should. And, uh, oh, by the way, can you cut us a check on the way out the door? That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. We- What's going on here? Tell me, tell me, Joe, if this makes sense. Too much bad news can make you sick. Researchers say researchers. Now, this is, I had to read this to everyone and share it with you because it's from my favorite platform in, on the planet. This is a Dateline Philadelphia from CNN. But, uh, the takeaway here is, according to this story, too much bad news can make you sick. But, Joe, the reason I wanted to bring this up, I wanted to bounce this off you. We've seen that enormous volcanic explosion near Guatemala City. Yeah, you were right. That's yeah. bigger uh, than what big story. I... Yeah, it was bigger yesterday. I, I apologize for not giving you the, the credit for it. I said, oh, it's not really nothing, and then I looked at it, 25 people die. That's why you've got to be in our Patreon form, everyone. Uh, I, I brought this up yesterday, and I knew that there were 25 people, excuse me, who'd passed away, uh, and the airport grounded all flights. And when I brought it up in the forum, Joe was like, yeah, that's yeah, nothing. Whatever. Let's move on. Shut up, <laughs> it John. It was great. Shut up, John. But yeah. real quick, yeah, I'm going to shut up in about 20 seconds. Back to this uh, article. Um, Joe, I, I want to bounce this off you. It says here, uh, according to the National Centers for Environmental Information, uh, the United States experienced 16 weather and climate disasters last year with losses exceeding 1 billion and total costs of approximately 306 billion a national record so there's the takeaway it's a national record but it goes on to say that uh, the united nations disaster monitoring system says that since 1970 this is the part i want to ask your opinion on joe since 1970 the number of disasters worldwide has more than quadrupled rising to about 400 per year. Now, number one, Joe, that number seems a little low, but number two, we always ask this chicken or the egg question. Are there more natural disasters occurring, or are we just better equipped to communicate them? What do you think, Joe? Well, I think that there are more natural disasters occurring. Now, we saw a record low tornado season here in the United States this year. Did I get the thumbs up, Eric? No? Okay. Uh, we did see the lowest, one of the lowest tornado seasons on record this year. And last year we saw a number of, uh, uh, hurricanes. And we didn't have a hurricane on land for over, for almost 10 years. And then last year we saw this explosion of them. I do think they come in waves and patterns. But if you go through some, uh, especially, uh, books from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, before the inventions of the internet, and I, I like to do this because I, what I do is I read other people's uh, opinions on, on uh, all things, religion and, and everything else. But there's a book I was reading. It's called Past, Present, and Future. And it ta- it's from 1904, I believe. And it talks about the correlation between the uh, increase in, in bad weather and the increase of evil in the world. And I, it's a hundred-some-page book. I can't, I'm not going to be able to bring it up. Uh, right now exactly what the quote was but they talked about satan being the prince of the power of the air and as more uh evil is loosened on the earth more control is given over to that evil uh of the earth now we know obviously god is the uh you know the first and foremost and last authority on everything but satan is allowed to work inside of those parameters that god had set uh set out there after man fell from sin so there is uh, a lot of people who think that, yes, the weather can be influenced by evil. Now, one of the things that we've seen in the last 150 years is the huge increase of uh, connectivity and the availability of 
uh, us to find out what's going on around the world in any part of the world basically in a moment's notice. And we've also seen what many people will blame on weather changes is, um, you know, man-made climate change. But I don't believe that to be the case. You know, before man ever walked the, on the face of the earth, you had dinosaurs who were, uh, you know, uh, living, uh, they, they, I don't know, had one of the richest periods. The CO2 levels were higher. Uh, vegetation and whatnot, you know, was soaring. And they didn't have any industries. They didn't have any, you know, emit, you know, carbon emissions as far as from your cars or, or their houses. And they still saw the, themselves, their species wiped out. We also know that man's wickedness plays a uh, part in this as well. And I can't, I can't find what I'm looking for here. So, uh, I'm, I'm gonna uh, skip that. But one thing that's very true, at least in my opinion, the signs in the sky, in, in the, the stars, in our atmosphere, all point to signs. I mean, all these events point to, to signs, the things that are happening. These are, are things we're supposed to pay attention to. We need to be very mindful of what it, what it is that is going on, uh, in and around us. We need to be very mindful of how, uh, you know, even our own decisions, our own, uh, choices can affect uh, everything around us. And I do believe you have the people who are the controllers of the society who are manipulating and attempting to manipulate weather. We know from talking with Dane Wigington and talking with others, geoengineering is very real. The people believe, and even so back in the 70s and in the 60s, believed that they had enough power to control the weather. One example is in Vietnam. The United States talked about creating super rainstorms in order to make the uh, conditions so terrible for uh, the Vietnamese to fight under. And this is nothing new. The question is, is how far, how, how much, uh, uh, how, what's the ability the, that mankind is able to manipulate the weather and if so how much uh help do they get from spiritual forces one of the things that we haven't uh, you know that that never is talked about in the mainstream news is the hidden hand behind what is going on in our world we have f- spiritual forces that we are fighting against we have spiritual forces that are good and here are here on our side and one thing is uh you know for certain that after sin, after the fall of mankind due to sin, Satan was given uh, pretty much ultimate authority over this earth. And he has been using that authority not only uh, to deceive, but he has been using it to manipulate and destroy, deceive, and steal the souls of each and every one of us. And this is a spiritual battle. And when we look at the influence that Satan had even in heaven, so much so he was able to deceive other angels to go with him in his plight, if that's possible, how much easier is it for him to deceive and manipulate those people here on earth? And we're told about the time when uh, the devil comes. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth for and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto earth having great wrath, because he knoweth that his time is short. So we know that whether it is uh, things that are happening because the Lord wants us to see the changes in our uh, in our earth, uh, as the times that we are approaching are, are very important, or it could be, uh, you know, that, that, that Satan is the one directing these events, uh, for whatever reason. But either way, uh, John, back to the original, back to the original headline. It was a bad news is not good for your health. I would say anything that's, <laughs> anything negative, any, any, any negative, uh, emotion or, 
whatever it is. Of course it's bad for you. If you're, if you're constantly, you know, looking at bad things, if you're constantly focused on bad things, negative things, of course it's going to have a huge impact on your health. And it's not, I mean, you're, you're going to drive yourself crazy. And mental illness, uh, is one of the biggest things they're talking about. You know, if you're constantly looking at bad news and you're prone to depression, of course it's going to make you depressed. Well, you got to find ways around that. Let me, let me ask our, our listeners and viewers a really honest question. Okay. This is a, uh, let's take a quick second for some, some self-assessment here. And I'll be perfectly honest. I've actually been going through a little bit of self-assessment over the past, uh, four or five days. And I want to say a special thanks to, uh, my dear friend, Pastor Mike Spaulding, who spent an enormous amount of time with me on the phone last night after our Patreon form. How many of our listeners and viewers out there uh, are dealing with anxiety or dealing with depression because what's happening is how, how many how many people out there have gone from one glass of wine to maybe a bottle or a bottle and a half every evening and it's kind of easy to slip down that road or you need some pharmaceuticals etc. Uh, we've met hundreds if not thousands of our listeners over the years and a lot of people Joe they make this mistake they utilize our platform and all of our counterparts across the new media and they absorb these copious amounts of, of extreme negativity. And, and, and as the producer of the program, I want to uh, implore all of you to consider what you're actually doing every day when this occurs. What, what you're saying people are affected negatively by listening to the show because they receive the negatives or, or focus on the negatives well, from it? I, I am, but I want to take it one step further. Uh, what I'm saying is that is that when we, what we, what we want to do here, our mission statement is to serve as almost like a sharpened fish hook to snag people by what's happening every day and, and bring them back to the realization that without, without a relationship with God, without a relationship with Christ, you are in trouble. I mean, you're in trouble on an eternal, by eternal definition. And what I see happening, Joe, I'll just uh, wrap this up uh, quickly, but, Pastor Mike Spaulding explained to me last night that that the Christian path is supposed to be coming to true repentance and proclaiming the gospel to be true, that Jesus is the Christ, that yes, he died for my sins and rose on the third day. And then you're supposed to, Joe, through a repentant spirit and sanctification, you're supposed to, according to the book of John, become a holy vessel. That Key, that key term really uh, blew me back in my chair. And I asked myself, am I a holy vessel? So I think what's happened is there's a disconnect. And the story we're going to tackle here next, uh, the title of tonight's show, this issue in Tucson, is a great example. Yes, we all care about what's happening with kids and if they're being trafficked, etc. But I would encourage all of our listeners and viewers to to take a moment and ask yourself how much time are you spending each day parsing through Satan's handicraft versus excellent versus uh, the spiritual nourishment that you know is sitting right there on your shelf gathering dust Joe and of course that's the Bible I understand we've got Psalm in yeah and we're going to bring him on in just a minute (laughs) Uh, past present and future is the book I'm reading and uh, when you talked about uh, when we're talking about can Satan control the weather, uh, this author from 1904 says yes. Just look at Ephesians 2:2. 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air, the name is well applied for. It is he who causes terrible cyclones, tidal waves, and other awful disasters. Only the restraining hand of God prevents him from bringing devastation to the whole world. More awful 
than is yet to be known. And then he goes on to cite Job. Look at Job as the example for what it was that uh, afflicted Job with the calamities uh, in quick succession. It talked about the ability of the the enemy to stir up storms and, and fires down from heaven and on and on and on. So yes, there is biblical examples of Satan being able to manipulate and control weather. So with that, Keep going. I, I've got I, I ran out of words on the screen, Eric. <laughs> Where okay. do I go? I, I've, I've got a word. Uh, he just texted me. He said he's going to be with us in two minutes. So a uh, quick quick background on this. I spoke with Craig early this morning, and God bless him. I called him. It was like 7 o'clock a.m. Uh, Arizona time. Uh, and he was kind enough to really to kind of set the record straight on what's happening here in Tucson, and and so Craig has had an enormously busy last couple of days, Joe. And just to contextualize okay. this, uh, last Tuesday uh, he was contacted. His organization, Vets for Child Rescue, that's Vets the numeral four childrescue.org, and uh, he was informed that they had found this camp. That, that and there's a lot of questions as to what this camp is. It's in it's in the Greater Tucson area, just north of the border, off of I-19. Now. An organization named uh, VOP, Vet, uh, Vets on Patrol, I believe, uh, and it's headed by a man named uh, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence Arthur is his name. Uh, they found this camp, and they brought they brought some experts, and, and Craig, with his work as a U.S. Navy SEAL and in the United States Marine Corps, has seen this type of thing, as has his colleagues. They uh, equipped themselves quickly with a camera package, and they rolled out to this uh to this area. They were able to shoot video, Joe, and there are three separate short videos up on Craig Sawyer's YouTube channel, and that is uh, simply type in Craig Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, on YouTube, and you will find these three videos. So that's a really good start point to get the optics of what we're going to have Craig come in and discuss tonight. But there are multiple facets of this story. Uh, bear with me for just a moment. Joe, you okay. want to jump in here? Yeah, well, we're having issues with Craig. You know, I don't know what it is if it's Skype. Uh, a few, well, two weeks ago we yeah, had what is going on? like three days in a row a, a series of Skype guests that, that we were having all these technical difficulties, glitches, uh, freezings and whatnot, and Craig couldn't get, can, we, we had a problem with our, our uh, first guest, uh, Ashton. We tried uh, with Craig here. We had some behind-the-scenes stuff going on. We actually did get him on. And then it was frozen. But re- really uh, important stuff you're talking about. And I really want Craig to talk about this because, again, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. that I've been reading a number of theories, uh, a number of naysayers as well, of people trying to say, hey, this is not, you know, children, t- uh, uh, this is not child sex trafficking. This is merely for, uh, you know, homeless people uh, to go and, and get shelter in uh, on a hot or cold day. This is for... A stopping point for immigrants uh, who are traveling, you know, from uh, their their the south all the way up north. But let me tell you something: you go watch the videos. Go on Craig Sawyer's personal YouTube channel. Watch the videos. Go on Gateway Pundit. Read Alicia Powell's article. Tell me that those are for immigrants. That those are for homeless people. They even say you can even see only small children can fit there. They've also found pornographic materials there. So that is another, in my mind, huge component of this. And what's up with these, uh, and, and listen, I apologize, uh, listeners and viewers, for the being graphic, but I don't know how else to do it. What's up with these, these, there's clear pictures of what look like wrist restraints on some kind of vertical studs or, or poles, and of course Craig can elaborate on that, but these look like 
uh, two-inch like cloth webbing that have either been screwed or tacked to yeah. these poles. This looks like something where you would have this type of thing going on. Uh, now, what we'll okay. do if we need to, we listeners, is we will uh, skip the commercial break, and, and we may need to ask for five minutes of blessing from Peter Barry Chaka as well. But we're going to bring Craig Sawyer on right now, vetsforchildrescue.org. Craig, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me on, guys. Pleasure. Sorry about the technical difficulties, Craig. Uh, so tell us, the videos we're watching, the reports we're seeing, um, is it as bad as it looks? Is it is this a place where children are being stored in traffic? Well, I think the whole <clears throat> the whole thrust of, of this is to get the law enforcement officers, to get all of law enforcement, whoever ends up in being in charge of this case, having jurisdiction, to follow through with a with a legitimate investigation in good faith to find out what is going on there. That's that's really what everybody that's that's watching this and concerned really wants. It seems. Uh, I got notified uh, Tuesday night uh, by a third party and said, "Hey, this this other organization found." This uh, site, and, and at the time, I was actually misinformed. I was I was told that there were children in the bunker and that needed safeguard until law enforcement could get there. So I boogied down there, and then learned more as I got on site. So that was Tuesday night was the first time uh, I think anybody else had been notified about what what was going on because I believe that's the night that he he found it. So anyway, went through there with my cell phone. Uh, I had even beaten my own production crew there. I notified the the Contraland production crew said, "Hey." Get your cameras. Let's let's film this in case there's anything to, to share with the American public on real world stuff that's going on with the kids because that's that's what Contraland's all about. So when I got down there, I looked through that site and I gotta admit, <clears throat> seeing a septic tank buried like that, turned on its side with a bunch of children's items in it, you could tell children have been kept in there because uh, children's earrings, uh, forks, some uh, Lucky charm cereal down there, a little little set of Chester. Chester drawers, uh, yeah. a little tiny uh, chest with drawers in them, and child's clothing and other items and effects. There's a, a, a bit, about a foot, four foot length of lightweight chain, almost like a dog chain, with a lock, a padlock through that. That when the guys surf around and they're pulled out, said, "Hey, saw man, what do you make of this?" I'm like, "Oh man, that's." I don't know what why that would be in there, but anyway, uh, the whole thing is to try to get, and I notified the FBI very specifically. Uh, to go in there and investigate that. That that container, it's a solid plastic container. It should be a wealth of forensic evidence, including DNA on that, that fork and those earrings and those kind of things uh, should lead them to, to whatever, whoever was in there. So could it have been a desperate homeless family that put their children in there? Well, it's possible, but we none of us that looked at it and saw it in person believed that that would have been the case. We can't imagine putting our children in there willingly. It is hot in that container. It is not comfortable. The bottom of that container is rounded, and there's no place to for even a child to curl up and get comfortable and sleep there. And it's at an odd angle on its side, and small children could not be able to get out of there without uh, some sort of help. Well, Craig, so it, it, and they, nobody could hear them scream or, or yell from inside there, because due to the way that it's buried, and, and there's no ventilation, only the one small hole. Yeah. that they would have to come in and out of. So uh, could it have been used for uh, a desperate homeless person in bad weather or something? Yeah, uh, but due to the totality of it, like any other federal criminal investigator is trained uh, to look around the rest of the site, we don't believe that that's what it was. Or nobody would uh, put their children in there. Look, 
putting your child in a simple tent or under a simple tarp would be much more comfortable for them than shoving them in that uh, septic tank, which is what it was. It's a septic tank turned on inside. We don't believe that that's what it was for. Hey, but you know what? We continued investigating around, and that site is also multiple boxes of used hair dye. Now, in the middle of the woods, folks, right off a, a, a highway that runs straight to Mexico out of Tucson, why would you need brunette hair dye? Why do homeless people need brunette, multiple boxes of brunette hair dye? So people are getting their hair dyed dark colors in those woods at that camp that's got, um, yeah. sex lube. You know, we found sex lube there, a bunch of little dolls, children's dolls, uh, bracelets, you know, things like that, uh, lotion, uh, porn, you know, different pornographic magazines. Yeah, I read that. So it's, it could have been a, a homeless camp where the people were just weird or mentally ill, but um, there was a group of trees that that looked like rape trees. And the reason we say that is because one of my guys, that, that uh, tier one level operator, a lot of counterterrorist experience, he said, Craig, this camp looks like what a stop in what we would call a rat line over in Africa where Al-Qaeda is running bodies and would lay up you know, for the day or night, depending on what time of the year it was refuel with the water and food and then move on except for in Africa we don't see these rape trees and rape trees, anybody google it and look, uh, ask your law enforcement friends and uh, immigration border patrol um, uh, rape trees are essentially what the, the drug traffickers, coyotes tend to want to use uh, to rape people, they tie them to and they take their undergarments and they hang them up on the tree as some sort of trophy so we found a in this camp is a is a group of trees with all manner of fire hose nailed to it and loops and different straps and different types of rope and various um, various states of decay. Uh, some of them very brittle. I've, I took one of the, the pieces of uh, nylon webbing, like maybe a half inch webbing, and just pulled on it and it snapped right in half. So it had been dry rotted. So there had been things nailed to and tied around this trees for tree for years and years, uh, and, and things rot very quickly in the desert. But uh, but at least several years would be my estimate by how old some of these pieces of uh, yeah, you know, the strap and webbing were. So look, uh, do I know what they strapped to this tree? No, but from knee height to overhead uh, eight feet, there was numerous ways to strap something to two trees that were looked like had wrist restraints on them. And there was another tree that was even more creepy than that with a little stick that that about in an inch and a half, maybe two inches in diameter that was small and short, maybe ten inches wide and and lashed together around a a smaller tree with all the bark kind of smoothed out from there down at about four feet of height that almost looked like a child's scooter handle for a scooter uh, but it was a stick lashed to another tree and, and about knee height was the, a, a set of a coax cable with two female ends that you could simply wrap a, a male end and clip into instantly for another type of restraint so it looks like something something was repeatedly strapped to these trees again and again and again for years with numerous types of strapping materials that much is fact uh, what it was we don't know. So uh, the the group out there, veterans on patrol, that started in this media storm. Some are calling it a dumpster fire uh, type of event, media media storm. 
the reason they're doing that is to cause people to pay attention when Tucson Police Department were not initially inclined to go out there and look at the site and investigate it. They didn't go out there, uh, to my knowledge, until Saturday. So apparently they spent two hours out there Saturday finally looking at the, the actual site and they left. Uh, so the guy that runs uh, VOP is frustrated. And so he's resorting to means that get media attention so that uh, Tucson's uh, hand will be forced to investigate this. So I've, I have understood that uh, Tucson has cut their police force by one-third. It's laid off a third of their police officers and many more still who are driving the police officer vehicles are not police at all. They are public servants. They are unarmed and they do not respond to crimes. They will respond to domestic uh, call-outs or events. So wow. uh, I don't know why the criminals might be seen as more deserving of serving and protecting than the than the American citizens and the citizens of Tucson, but I think we need to look at uh, who's running TPD and what's going on there. I know people, uh, law enforcement officers that work for TPD, and they love serving and protecting the people. They want to fix this. They don't want to see children trafficked here. So my thing is, let's get them better support. Let's get them better political backing and funding and manpower so that they can serve and protect the, the people of Tucson. Because right now, uh, the, the the citizens of Tucson, Arizona, are not being fully served and protected. Uh, and so I think that something needs to come out of this, if nothing else. And I do, I have notified the FBI very specifically, and I hope the FBI follow through on this, if they end up with jurisdiction over this case, and forensically investigate and, and follow through in good faith to find out whoever actually is responsible for this situation and run it down and hold those accountable no matter who it is politically no matter who it is financially uh, we need justice and we need not be treating our children this way nobody needs to be able to treat our children this way in the United States that's what I'm about that's what Veterans for Child Rescue is about simply trying to stop the harm to children so I appreciate you guys having me on to be able to share some of what's going on absolutely and Craig I wish we had more time I got tons of questions but what's what? how can people best help you uh, uh, right now in this situation. Yeah, man. Well, they can go to our website, vetsforchildrescue.org, and we've got a lot of support now. We've got uh, people helping on the website with different um, different templates. Uh, we've got information to help people know what to do and to help people that are experts at different things um, register so that they can provide intel or investigations or whatever it is that they have uh, there's even a template there to allow people to sign up as a fast team leader, which allows them to do fundraising events for. So it's over the last week or two, there's been an enormous growth, enormous growth in that regard, which I'm just grateful for and blessed. It's, it's uh, such a positive uh, opportunity to grow this in a much more powerful organization for the kids so that we can reach more and more children as we expand and take some of our educational uh, programs that empower the children on how not to get uh, caught up into this, take these programs national. So God bless everybody that's helping and signing up and registering and praying for us and uh, and donating and, and rattling their friends who, who are financially capable to donate us on, uh, to, to fund us on a higher level. It's just, it's a growth process and we're getting stronger and wiser and more capable as we go. So it's, it's encouraging to see, even in a dark situation like child trafficking, the light is out, out shine in the darkness and the good is winning, uh, slowly but surely. So we're, we're trying to speed it up as best we can. 
Amen. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Vets for Child Rescue is the website at Craig R. Sawyer. You can follow him on Twitter. And if we have time, I'd like to, to bring you back on to talk about this because I'm seeing a lot of interesting connections here uh, that are being posted about the land, who owns it, connected to that. And I wanted to ask you, uh, how come, would it have been possible to do a sting to sit back and do surveillance on that area until, I know now it's too much publicity, but... Um, yeah, no, no, no it, would, it would have been, you know, our, our organization runs, each organization runs things differently. You know, my organization is heavy with intelligence community veterans and federal law enforcement, counterterrorism veterans. So we run things very covertly normally. Uh, we're using the media piece to alert the populace, but we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have chosen those tactics, but hey, those, that, those people found that site and they're handling it the way that they best see to, Bring exposure and a positive outcome. So we we're praying for them and hope uh, the the best, and we hope that their efforts end up bringing about a positive correction in a safer world for the children. Uh, you know, sh- had we found it, we would have you know handled it our way. Yeah. So I guess that's probably the, the best way to, to say that. Well, Craig the Sawman Sawyer, thank you so much for for what you do, and you and your team. You'll be in our prayers. Our audience will be praying for you, and I hope they support you as much as they can. God bless you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Wow. Yeah, we, Craig, we love you, brother. Thank you so much for the time that you spend uh, week in, week out, keeping uh, everybody here at the Hagman Report informed. And this story's not going anywhere. No. We're, we're going to be talking about this uh, more and more as the days go by and as more information comes out. Sorry, John, did you uh, have somewhere you wanted to go before we bring Peter on? Nope, just wanted to make sure I got that special thanks out to Craig. And, and again, to emphasize, vetsforchildrescue.org. Look, we've known these, these this group, we've known these people for uh, a good amount of time now. And I would remind our listeners and viewers, Joe, that not once, not twice, but three times, I have received text messages at dark 30 in the middle of the night. And Craig Sawman Sawyer and his team have made a bust. They've made a sting most recently in St. George, Utah, and perps who would hurt your kids are being cuffed and thrown in a concrete box where they belong. And I get those texts, and the next morning, it's hit the media. So this is the real deal, and I would really encourage and appreciate if people support Craig and his team. Well, all right, and and thank you very much. Uh, again, go to HagmanReport.com. There you will find Peter Chowka's most recent articles he's got two up there one from yesterday one from today then there is other news curated news that's in the other news section as well uh something that's really interesting that you guys should read on hagman report u.s school kids told to uh, submit to a law 12 and 13 year old students in west virginia were ordered ordered by a government school teacher to declare their submissions to a law the Islamic God as part of the Muslim Declaration of Faith known as the Shahada. And I'm sure I butchered that. The assignment sparked outrage among parents and comes amid similar scandals nationwide. The controversy exercise called for the students in seventh grade social studies to write out the words of Islamic conversion in Arabic calligraphy. It was reportedly part of a packet on world religion that was sent home with students. The, uh, the Shadaha, which students were ordered to write in Arabic, is one of five, one of the five pillars of Islam. It is a declaration of faith in Allah and in Muhammad, a man Islamic holy book describes as his messenger. While there is plenty of Islam in the packet, there were no Bible verses, no Ten Commandments, 
and sure as heck wasn't the Lord's Prayer. Wait a second, wait a second, help me out here. This is a public school that's paid for by property taxes of the locals in that region, in that neighborhood, and there are, no doubt, there are Christian, Jewish, other religions uh, of students in this seventh grade class, but they're being required to submit to Allah and mm-hmm. proclaim proclaim Muhammad. Not even learn about and, it. Submit. Yeah, submit. Submit. That's that boy. I'll tell you, as a as a Christian man, if it were my kid being told to submit to Islam, there'd be a hot time at the school. Let me tell you. And one other thing, I'd like to point out on the on the tail end of our uh, uh, visit with Craig Sawyer, is Muhammad who everybody's got such a great love for in this country all of a sudden, his first marriage and marriage bed was with a nine-year-old yep. girl. That's not John Robertson's opinion. Go read Hadith. Yeah, lock Tommy Robinson up for pointing out the uh, you know grooming of kids for sexual purposes. The communist planks, goal number 10, free education for all children in government schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, combination of education with industrial production. Have we seen the government indoctrinated schools take over what was once a great education system when it was private before the federal government got involved? Again, go try to take a test, a sixth grade English test, heck, a third grade English test from the 1900s. See if you can get any answers right and then tell me we're evolving as a people it's absolutely mind-boggling the uh, level of control these devils have over us anyway with that our monday slot hour three peter barry chowka one of our favorite guests author and journalist uh, author at american thinker as well as on hagman report you can find him follow him on twitter at p chowka peter it's great to have you back on the show Thank you, Joe. Good evening to both of you guys. It's great to be on video again. And we're joined tonight, at least at the outset, by the two felines. That's Lulu on my left and Biggie on my right. They're enjoying their dose of catnip. And I'm not sure how much longer they'll be around, but at least they're here at the outset. And interestingly, uh, several of my Twitter friends informed me that today, June 4th, is National Hug Your Cat Day. So, uh, oh, okay. If you have a, hey, you know you have a cat, I, I hug my cat. Cat a hug. I, Peter, <laughs> I, I, I can, I can honestly report here this evening that I have already hugged, uh, being totally ignorant that it's National Hug Your Cat Day, but I have in fact hugged both uh, Linny and Little Cat today. <laughs> well, John, John, knowing you and your love for cats, I imagine <laughs> that a day doesn't go by that you don't hug. Cats. No, so, in fact, so. there is, and I, it's one of they're they're one of the, the the little joys that that the Lord blessed me with, and they it really helps me get through uh, much of what we do, Peter. And by the way, welcome. Absolutely. It's great to work with you again. Thank you. Good to see you, Peter. You and, feeling all right? Uh, you sound a little uh, you stuffy. Sound a little stuffy. Well, no, it, I was going to mention that um, the past week. This is actually day twenty nine that I've been under the weather, and the past week. It manifested as a really world-class head cold. And uh, although I hope that I'm largely over it by now, I mean, two days ago, this wouldn't have been possible, what we're doing right now. But you know that when a head cold is usually winding up, uh, you get the effect in your voice. A day or so ago, I had a a lower octave uh, range in my voice. And I thought I should start doing narrations. Welcome to the Hagman Report. And uh, I also still have a cough, but I took some cough medication, and hopefully that will be okay. But 
hopefully I'm on the mend, but I, I've been in touch with my Twitter friends who ask me how I'm doing, and I, I answer everybody, so I give uh, accurate reports, and many of them make medical or health recommendations, which I appreciate, although I'm, I'm pretty strong on the case because I've been into nutritional supplements for most of my adult life, and I have a very good supply of some of the best. So I'm doing what I need to be doing, but you know it's interesting when uh, you guys were talking about that study about uh, how uh, paying too much attention to toxic news can make you sick. And as I considered uh, just my health status in the last month or so, I've concluded that really this this nonstop attention to the news of the day. Uh, not only can make you sick, but can exacerbate an illness that you unfortunately do get. And about four weeks ago, when uh, I, I had my transient medical health emergency, and for several days after that, I really could barely function at all. I just had to rest and slowly recover back to some degree of balance and equilibrium. But I was not able to tolerate, or, or all, only able to tolerate in very small doses, having Fox News on or uh, I, I could actually look at the internet more easily than having the blaring media invade my space and especially when the commercials come on it, it felt so toxic I thought no wonder why people are in, in a state of future shock and pulling their hair out and acting so weirdly because this is a constant assault that we're under but we do have you know, we do this professionally we have to pay attention to the news and even in the past week, um, I was able to knock out three articles, which we can discuss brief briefly tonight. And all three of them are at HagmanReport.com. They were also published by uh, American Thinker. And one of them was picked up by Dr. Michael Savage, who posted it at, at his website. So that helped that one along. And it's interesting because uh, at least one of these articles I was tipped off to, or one of the subjects I was tipped off to by one of my uh, best friends on Twitter. And uh, she's been coming up with some really amazing stuff, so I followed up on that. Now, now the first article to hit was uh, last Thursday, and it was titled Interview of the Week. Or that's what I titled it at uh, Hagman Report when I uploaded and updated it for HagmanReport.com, but I titled it Interview of the Week, Rudy Comes Out Swinging for the President of the United States, and that was about an interview that Rudolph Giuliani gave last Wednesday night on Sean Hannity's program. He was on with a one-on-one -on -one with Sean for about eight or ten minutes, and it was kind of a breakthrough interview. It really was the, the old Rudy uh, with that fighting spirit and claiming basically, you know, we're going to fight representing the President of the United States, you know. We're probably not going to let him, allow him to testify before Special Counsel Robert Mueller and uh, we're going to fight any subpoenas and in the context of the interview, actually what I did was I wrote an introduction and then I included the entire transcript of the Hannity uh, Giuliani interview because so often when we watch the news we'll just get little sound bites and tidbits that some usually left wing editor somewhere is pulling out of a, 
of a longer form interview or broadcast. And I thought it's really interesting just to be able to read this for yourself. And uh, of course, you can read it more quickly than you could listen to the video or the audio. And at one point, he said, uh, Giuliani said, notice that the Democrats are mentioning impeachment less and less now because they've determined that if they try to ride that issue, it might not uh, acquit them so well in the November elections because most Americans, no matter how they feel about President Trump, probably don't have much of a stomach for another impeachment battle. I mean, we saw that in 1998 when President Bill Clinton was impeached and tried in the Senate, and there were grounds there, certainly, but it boomeranged back on the Republicans, and Clinton somehow left office with an approval rating in the 60th percentile. So the Republicans are waking up to that. But in the context of mentioning this, Giuliani said, notice that you don't hear uh, Maxine Waters mentioning it much anymore. And then he called her sweetheart. And I thought that was so natural of him to do that, and funny, and, and, and true all at the same time. And Giuliani, when he was mayor of New York City for eight years, uh, imagine being elected a Republican mayor in New York City in um, 1993, and he served from January 94 until January 2002, including during the 911 attacks. And Giuliani really showed his stuff as mayor of New York. Not only did he do a great job, in cleaning up New York from the disaster that it was under uh, decades of, of incompetent de- Democrat mayors who had preceded him. He, he really uh, he, he let the police do their work. Crime went way down. The ridiculous people on the street who used to attack your car if you were driving through, the so-called squeegee men, he put them out of business. And New York really uh, rebounded and had a new renaissance of success and economic recovery under his management, but he had to deal with the New York media and the New York press, which is the closest thing to sensational yellow journalism of the past in its own unique way that that we've ever seen, certainly in that period. So uh, he knew how to deal with them, though. He, he gave better than he got, and he left with a high approval rating, and he came to be known as America's mayor because of the way he uh, acted uh, to unify the city and also the country in the wake of the uh, September 11th, uh, 2001 attacks on Manhattan. So uh, I think that interview that he did with Hannity last Wednesday was kind of a turning point. And every time that he's been quoted or interviewed since then, he's giving more of the same, you know, He's a tough guy. He's from the streets of New York. He knows his way around. He's a brilliant attorney. And he's not going to let his client, the President of the United States, who's also an old friend of his, go down without a... So I took real heart from that, and uh, I was happy to do that article. And uh, of the three articles that I did this past week... That one went online at American Thinker Thursday. That one did very, very well. It had a lot of reader comments and a lot of um, a lot of page views. And it's it's difficult to predict how that's going to work out because, as I've said before, a little bit in some of the discussing some of the business behind uh, 
the box here, so to speak. Uh, journalism today online is more and more about what stories the editor and the publisher think are going to be effective clickbait. What stories are going to get the page views because it's all about advertising that's embedded in the articles. So it makes sense that they want stories that are going to be very, very hot. In fact, a new term is being used now uh, in terms of titling articles, and it is said that they, it, they'll do best if they have certain trigger words. Now, when American Thinker put that article on uh, Rudy up, uh, as the subhead, they used, uh, the editor there used the trigger word of uh, Maxine Waters, and sure enough, I think her name in the context of that story drew a lot of readers to click on that story and then to comment on it. So it's interesting how all this is coming together and working. Now, the next uh, story that I was following up on, and that got posted on Friday at American Thinker, and, and, and this is a really interesting one, how this came about. It was titled, Did Michelle Obama Lobby ABC TV's President to Fire yeah. Roseanne? I, I, I didn't want to give anything away on air uh, earlier, but I did mention this headline and talked about how the... the the fact that outside influences, influences from outside of the world of TV, uh, even into a former government administration, could be influencing what decisions are made on network TV. Yes, and the way this came about, I'll just sketch the chronology briefly. It was very early Tuesday morning last week, and we don't know exactly what time because it is said that Roseanne Barr was probably in Hawaii, where she spends most of her time when she's not otherwise working in the continental USA. Uh, but she and, and none of the articles will, will tell you what time zone this happened in. But sometime after midnight, it could have been Hawaii time, it could have been Eastern time, who knows? She tweeted her infamous, uh, what is it, 53 character tweet which I'll just review because it's not X-rated or anything. She, 53 characters. She tweeted, quote, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ, end quote. So immediately uh, the people on her trail said, well, you must be referring to Valerie Jarrett. And this is a racist tweet. So she took it down very soon afterwards. I'm not sure how soon, but very soon it is said. And she apologized, but that wasn't, uh, I mean, she had done the deed that basically those 53 characters sunk her. So by the morning, by Tuesday morning, the ABC television network announced that they were canceling her series, Roseanne, the reboot of it, which had premiered several months ago to the highest ratings of any sitcom in recent memory, I think 24 or 27 million total viewers. And when the short season wrapped up, I think there were nine episodes in this season, reboot season, uh, it was the most watched sitcom on network broadcast television. So for them, for ABC to cancel this, uh, I found one figure that said that they could be losing 
$1 billion of income in that franchise because it was foreseen that it would have a second season, which was already green-lighted, and then probably seasons beyond that as it found a new audience. So it was unprecedented how quickly uh, this president of uh, NBC, Channing Dungay, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation of her last name, but she was the one who canceled it. And, and she is an African-American woman, obviously mixed race, but uh, ABC made a big deal when they installed her in that position as the first African-American woman to be running a uh, broadcast uh, channel. That's that's big news, certainly. So she, fi- she fired Roseanne, canceled the show, and several hundred people who worked on the program were out of work. And then what, what took me aback on Tuesday when I started looking at that story and how it was breaking the news was it was like an Orwellian universe we had stepped into because every single person commenting on it, whether a news person or an opinion person, left, right, or center, immediately said, well, Roseanne is a racist, and she issued this racist, disgusting tweet. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Is there a court of racism somewhere that, you know, you do something and you are then officially determined to be a racist? Now, of course, in the meantime, Roseanne initially apologizing, but prolifically tweeting until actually last Thursday. She issued hundreds and hundreds of tweets, including trying to defend herself, saying she's always fought for uh, inclusiveness and uh, the rights of minorities, etc. And in fact, if if you go back and look at her her career, not only her career as a comic, but what she has done uh, on the Internet, what she has said, what she has written, she has been all over the map in terms of ideology. She actually ran for president on, um, not the green ticket, but I think the Peace and Freedom Party in 2012, which is very far left wing. And she did take a liking to Donald Trump when he was running and has been considered to be sort of friendly to him and in his camp since then, as was uh, the Roseanne show, this reboot, this spring, which she has a very strong hand in uh, as a, a creative person. She doesn't only just act in it. She is in control of it. And she played a character, Roseanne, who uh, was basically defending Donald Trump. And almost all the other characters on the show were not. And they were predictable leftists. So uh, I was monitoring how this news coverage was going. And, you know, it's hard to put your finger on it because the minute you say, should we really eviscerate someone's entire career because of a 53-character tweet and start calling them racist and vile and disgusting and everything else? I mean, especially when she apologized. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answer, but something really rubs me the wrong way about how this went down, and I think it's a really dangerous, slippery slope. So about uh, 12 hours or so after she issued her tweet uh, there well this started this started to trend very very slowly and I want to quote it exactly here if I can get it on the screen yes so about 12 hours after Roseanne's toxic tweet there was a tweet uh, issued by an individual named Josh Cornett 
He tweeted this. Breaking, yes. There it is. According to sources, ABC President Channing Dungay had a long conversation via phone with former First Lady Michelle Obama before deciding to cancel the Roseanne show. Michelle Obama was reportedly enraged and insisted an apology was inadequate, developing. So I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? But it didn't start to trend or propagate through the Internet until late that night or the next day. And actually, the first mainstream media that made reference to it was Fox News. Not that they endorsed it, but uh, they headlined a story. Uh, it was either late Wednesday night or early Wednesday, or early Thursday morning, saying Roseanne Barr says she may fight ABC firing, and she retweets claim that Michelle Obama was behind ouster, meaning that claim by Josh Cornett. And by Thursday, that would be uh, two full days since Roseanne's toxic tweet. By Tuesday, the story of uh, Josh Cornett's tweet had it was the tweet heard round the world is how I think I subtitled the story to American Thinker because it was reported on amidst the coverage of Roseanne in Australia, in the UK, and the Daily Mail I think in the UK did the longest story on this, and of course th- throughout the United States media. So everybody's quoting Josh Cornett, and uh, I, I looked at his tweet very closely and I thought, well. You know, what's his evidence? Who, who, where is he getting this information? So I sent him a direct message on Twitter, and he answered me. And we engaged in a back and forth for about the next 24 hours. But in a short span of time, I had enough material that I thought, based on my conversation with him, I could do an article, certainly not validating his tweet, because uh, he, he would not understandably uh, reveal whatever source or sources he had. And I understand that. Assuming, giving him the benefit of the doubt, assuming he has a legitimate source or sources, there's Josh. He, you know, why why would he give up that source? I mean, I wouldn't if I was in his position. But in my dialogue with him, much of which was off the record, I concluded that he is um, certainly a, an intelligent uh political animal. He's following politics very closely. Oh, and interestingly, the week before, you may remember, Drudge had on the Drudge Report a link to a story uh, alleging that President, uh, former President Barack Hussein Obama had telephoned Jay-Z, the uh, hip-hop rap star, and uh, influenced Jay-Z to contact other leading rappers so that they would not uh, fo- they would not do a Kanye West type thing and uh, be perceived as getting too friendly with Donald Trump. And who was the source of that tweet and that information? This same Josh Cornett. Again, citing anonymous sources. But I thought, well, I don't remember Trump. I'm sorry, I don't remember Drudge, Matt Drudge, ever publishing fake news in the history, the 22-year history of his website. I I just don't recall that. I I could be wrong, but Drudge has got a pretty good reputation, so I thought he thought enough of that tweet to to headline it, and it was on his site for quite a while, and then it, it went through the internet. So, 
You know, one of the questions I asked Josh uh, was to uh, describe himself. And let's see if I can just find his brief description here. Uh, All right. Okay. And Peter, we uh, were going to take the break to, to, to give you a, oh, a break, but we're going to blow perfect. through it. We're going to oh, blow through it. Oh, all right. It. Either way, either way, I'm fine. I'm just, okay. <laughs> okay. So, so we're no, so we're good to go right yeah, now. Yeah, we're good. Okay. Okay. Here's, so here's what Josh Cornett, uh, direct messaged me. He, uh, oh, because of course what I was trying to do in the early hours was say, find out who is this Josh Cornett. I assumed he would be somebody in the entertainment industry. And in fact, uh, there was a, or there is a Josh Cornett who has one, uh, credit at the internet movie database and there's a lot of other Josh Cornettes it's it's actually not an uncommon name so i asked i asked this Josh Cornett if he was the one mentioned at internet movie database so he answered me no no imdb laughing out loud i'm an average hardworking american i'm in my 30s i'm an investor that was inspired to dive into politics by the sad absence of christopher hitchens and the frustrating existence of CNN, exclamation point. So, in writing my article, it was sort of a journey into how this tweet came about, how it uh, went viral and trended, and how this this individual, Josh, is now on the map. He has uh, over 50,000 Twitter followers last time I checked. And he's uh, firing up a Twitter storm there. He tweets a lot and links a lot. And uh, I don't know. The jury is still out. I mean, we'll we'll see where he goes from here. But, you know, I, I reflected on how those who might say, well, how can, how can anybody even quote this guy? You know, we don't know who he is. He's not writing for a publication. What are his sources and credibility? And that's true. But yet... When the shoe is on the other foot, I mean, I have to reference here Yasher Ali, the young reporter who last August wrote a 900-word unsourced piece in the Huffington Post, which claimed he had talked with a number of women at Fox News, but he he used no quotes, he, of course, named no names, and uh, alleged that Eric Bowling, a leading host at Fox News, of that period last summer and for the 10 years before had sent a uh, sexually provocative picture texted it to several of his female colleagues and based on that alone Fox News Fox undertook an investigation and a month later Eric Bowling was separated from Fox News and I thought well if that could happen based on basically uh the same kind of, of little information, you know, we're in a new world here. We're in a brave new world. So who knows really what's going on? And, and even more to the point, when you look at the news that's come out in the past uh, 16 months or so since President Trump has been president, and you look to the top most respected newspapers in the country, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they are constantly citing unnamed anonymous sources, often not even quoting them. They'll just say a source claims this, a source says that. And the earth is turning on these unsubstantiated, unsourced, anonymous comments that are allegedly being told to these august newspapers who we know 
not to invest much of our trust in. So I, I tried to do my article without certainly endorsing what Josh was saying, but giving him a, a fair shot to explain what he was saying and then putting it in the context of this whole crazy story of Roseanne and, uh, you know, where it might go from here. And, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to go to a good place because she has really been made an example of and it, I'm sure, is, uh, terrifying anybody else who might be thinking of tweeting anything. And of course, the, on Thursday last week, we had the, uh, program by Samantha B, which has gotten so much attention since then. And of course, we've seen how her, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe what she did. I mean, in my view, it's as bad or worse than anything that Roseanne tweeted mm-hmm. with, with her limp apology. And then that very night, she gets an award in Hollywood for being, you know, a social justice warrior on TV or something like that. I mean, the, if anything, what these incidents you know, I mean, on one hand, you could say, well, this is some nonsense from the popular culture. Why should we even pay attention? Well, we have to because the bigger picture that this points to is where our society is going. And it, it, it's, again, going in a bad direction. Not, not to defend Roseanne. I'm not doing that. But the question needs to be asked, should her entire almost 40-year career go up in smoke in a matter of minutes because of a 53 character tweet that she apologized for. Oh, and I had this thought because, you know, it's interesting that she uh, allegedly compared Valerie Jarrett, I say allegedly because she only used initials, to the movie Planet of the Apes. I thought, I'll bet that came into her mind and consciousness because last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, Sunday and Monday, for two hours each night in prime time, CNN ran a four-part documentary series dedicated to the year 1958. You know, it's the 50th anniversary. It was an incredible year. And in those documentaries, because I watched them closely, there were some clips from Planet of the Apes because that was released in 1968. And it was a big hit that year. And in fact, when uh, the clips were showing the female ape who was running the show on the Planet of the Apes. You know, she was a, an eminent scientist and coming up against uh, Charlton Heston, who was the captured human living in a cage. Uh, interestingly, the face of this so-called ape from Planet of the Apes was not a dark face. It was a lighter color face. So there, there's elements in here that haven't been explored. I guess they're no-go zones. You know, the minute you you start uh, even ruminating on any of, of these subjects. You know, the, I'm, I'm sure the the hate speech is going to be flying. But, uh, you know, we shall see what happens. We shall see what happens with Samantha B. And, uh, but it's, 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 they're, they're going low. I would have to say they're going low. And I don't mean uh, Roseanne herself, but. Peter, let me ask you this. With the Samantha B thing, obviously this was just, you know, so far over the top. Uh, but I, at the beginning of the show, I read a story, um, and I have it up on Hagman Report somewhere about a, uh, one of the pundits. He was a, it was a lawmaker who stated that it was the fault of Trump. Trump's tone, Trump's rhetoric, 
is the blame for Samantha Bee's vulgarity. And there are many on the left who are coming to her defense. Kathy Griffin, another one, saying, you know, that it's not, uh, she should have never apologized. Samantha B should have never apologized. Kathy Griffin should have never apologized. And that, you know, this is, uh, when we have, live in extraordinary times with an extraordinary president that, you know, all bets are off. And they're actually getting support for, uh, you know, people like Samantha B in the media. And I find it absolutely so alarming especially when they can demonize Christians, when they can demonize uh, conservatives, gun owners, people who stand up for the Constitution. Americans in general are all fair game. But these leftists who are, are so vile that under any other president, if, if they did this to any other president, they would be fired immediately, never to be seen on TV ever again. They're actually building their careers, getting better careers because of what they're saying. Right. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't up on Samantha B. She's not somebody I no. follow or care about. But, of course, I did some research on her. And as I'm reading her Wikipedia page, which she, obviously, I would, in my opinion, she or one of her handlers had a heavy hand in. And reading about all her great accomplishments, I'm thinking, in my opinion, this doesn't amount to anything. This is all crap, basically. She's a purveyor of crap and dirt. I mean, just the title of her program, Full Frontal. You know what <laughs> yeah. that means. So, you know, it's not only a number of leading lights in the popular culture who have blamed President Trump for the climate that Samantha B was issuing her comments in, but a number have also blamed President Trump for what Roseanne Barr said, you know, really serious guilt by association there. And isn't it interesting and convenient how when this news came along on Tuesday and for most of the rest of the week it really grabbed a lot of attention then especially with the Samantha B thing on Thursday. And up to that point, uh, you know, until Roseanne's tweet, the Tommy Robinson story was starting to get some legs. It was starting to get some mainstream coverage. And that pretty much was blitzed away after the Roseanne story and then the Samantha B story hit. So I, I'm not alleging a conspiracy there to, uh, you know, to get uh, Tommy off uh, the front pages or stop trending. But isn't it interesting how convenient the timing was in oh, that yeah. case? So yeah. you know, where it, it's just uh, it's a sad, sad state of affairs. Now, just briefly, the. The last article I did, which uh, went online today, both at American Thinker and at HagmanReport.com, was based on something Sean Hannity said on his program on Fox News Friday night. And I was watching it when about uh, eight or ten minutes into his famous opening monologue, he stopped and addressed the camera and said, I, Sean Hannity, am the next target of the deep yeah. state. So, so I got the transcript of that, wrote a little introduction to it, and I thought, well, isn't this interesting? Because he was citing as the source for this information the latest book by Jerome Corsi, Killing the Deep State. And that's been out for a little while, for a month or two, but I guess it just came to Sean's attention that, uh, apparently in this book, I haven't read it, but apparently, uh, 
Jerome Corsi is citing his sources and saying, look out, Sean Hannity, you're really the number one target now. And uh, Sean kind of laughed about it in, a, in, in the transcript of the brief exchange here. I note uh, what he said. And then he welcomed, he introduced John Holloman, vice president of The Hill, who's been one of the leading investigative reporters during the past year who has uh, assisted Sean uh, and others like Sarah Carter and uh, Jay Sekulow and Greg Jarrett with uh, uh, really getting at the core of what happened in 2016, 2017, if not earlier, on the part of the previous administration of Barack Obama to try to uh, frustrate the election of Donald Trump. And then when that didn't work, to uh, negate his effectiveness as a president and, in their view, hopefully get him out of office, which they're obviously still trying to do. So Sean Hannity has, in terms of the mainstream media, as we've discussed many times here, and as I've been writing about for the past year, has been the uh, far and away head in the mainstream media of someone really doing the exceptional work on unraveling the story. It's, it's good old investigative journalism. I mean, 50 years ago or 45 years ago, it was being done by uh, Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post, although uh, with the long view back now in 2020 hindsight, I, I have some serious questions about how that all came together, the takedown of Richard Nixon, and I think a lot of it was really a setup and was really unfair uh, what they uh, dumped on him. And of course, Bernstein now is still uh, riding on the fumes from that effort, that award-winning effort 45 years ago as he appears on CNN. And uh, in my opinion, it looks half the time like he's ready to foam at the mouth as he discusses Donald Trump and his uh, hatred for the man. So another person on CNN you just cannot take seriously at all. But uh, uh, actually, I, I uh, shared this article with Sean, and he did reply in this case with a warm thank you for my doing it. But a, a coda to this story is that of the three articles of mine this past week, and, and I measure the uh, readership because of American Thinker, because American Thinker is a, a very highly trafficked site. And it's about in the low 4,000s at Alexa, which is pretty good. And, you know, most of the articles there will get at least 20,000 page views and usually more than that. So anyway, the last, uh, the previous two articles I mentioned and was discussing, you know, uh, the one about the tweet heard around the world and the Giuliani, uh, Maxine Waters uh, transcript. They did very, very, very well, both in terms of numbers of reader comments and uh, page views. Well, I was surprised that uh, this one today at American Thinker, the one I, Sean Hannity, am the next target of the deep state, did not do nearly so well at all. And it, it does show that it's hard to predict. You know, a lot of the audience now, especially reading these publications, they, they're kind of on a um, holier-than-thou point and it's like, well, why are you bothering to write about Fox News? Or we're sick of Sean Hannity, you know, he he makes too much money, he's too rich, you know, I cut the cord 10 years ago, and 
I think that may have even carried over into the uh, clickbait nature of this article. You know, it, it's hard to predict, and and actually, it's it's concerning me and depressing me in a way because back in the day when a writer wrote for a publication, even in the early days or even in the middle period of the Internet, the publishers and editors weren't at, at the websites, weren't sitting there totally evaluating the content in terms of its clickbait potential. But that's the dirty little secret that has happened in recent years. In fact, I think it's really taken off in the last year. And now, with advertising down because of the various blacklists on conservative sites and just the difficulty of maintaining financially, understandably, publishers and editors are getting more and more uh, into evaluating everything in terms of how they think it's going to do and how it's going to appeal to the readers. And Well, I found out another interesting thing I wanted to share, and... Um, this is really a matter of public knowledge, so I, I don't think it's it's secret. But um, you know, I use news.google.com a lot. That's the Google search of news, and it's mostly mainstream. But a lot of conservative publications get returned when you uh, keyword search something. So in 2007, when I first started writing for American Thinker, if I put in, for example, uh, a keyword, just uh, Michael Moore, because I was writing articles about him. I would see my articles at American Thinker come up in the top five, in the top ten, sometimes number one or two. And this persisted until fairly recently. I would occasionally, uh, just to see how they're doing in the lineup, I would put some keywords in from an article that had just gone online at American Thinker, and and usually they were they were always returned on the list, the the URL, and sometimes at a high level. Well, I noticed starting about two weeks ago that the returns were farther and farther down, and now I am noticing that they are not returning American Thinker articles at all. In fact, if you keyword search American Thinker at news.google.com, what you get is a variety of publications that are smearing American Thinker. It's there that I discovered that a few years ago, for example, the Southern Poverty Law Center claimed that American Thinker was a racist publication and they had Hate Watch uh, listed on the top of their evaluation of American Thinker. So it looks like there's another case history here happening in real time of how the giants of the Internet, in this case Google, are suppressing something that should does not deserve to be suppressed. In no way is American Thinker a fringe publication, a conspiracy publication, a hate publication. It's absolutely ridiculous to make that allegation. But what do you do if suddenly one day you find yourself, your publication is no longer getting listed, that you've been delisted or blacklisted in effect. You know, what do you do? How do you complain about that? I don't know. You probably can't really. We're I mean, who do you complain to? We know that the uh what's going on with the censorship, what they're doing now with the shadow banning, with the uh you know, blocking on, on Facebook and the, on on YouTube as well. We see channels still continuing to be taken off daily it's all geared in one direction it's toward the conservative speech it's toward the uh, conservative mindset it's toward the truth it's just anti uh, uh, propaganda 
And when I when I read your headline on air when we started the show, Peter, I said, well, you know, who 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 didn't see that one coming? Uh, Sean's not the next target; right. he's already the the previous target, uh, the constant target who's actually overcame it more than once. But yes, uh, as we see Fox News, you know, continuing to dominate in the ratings, as we see CNN falling below the viewership of the Home and Garden channel. They have to do something to gain their relevance back. And I said it earlier, CNN, just tell the truth. You'll have the biggest audience in the whole country, in the that, world, but they won't do that. That's a big job for them. By the way, I heard you mention the ratings earlier, so I looked up uh, last month's ratings. These are the Nielsen ratings. And uh, in prime time, number one month of May was Turner Network Television, TNT, is an entertainment channel, but not very far behind. The Fox News Channel at number two. And much farther behind at number 12 was CNN coming in behind Investigation Discovery, The History Channel, TBS, Home and Garden, USA, and MSNBC was number four. They're doing okay. And when you look at the entire day, that is 6 a.m. to 6, no, 6 a.m., what is this now? Let me get this, 6 a.m., yeah, 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. So, in other words, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, the ratings, that's where Fox wins. They are number one of all the cable channels. Number two there is Turner Network Television, which is number one in primetime. MSNBC is number three in the full 24-hour day ratings. And CNN is number eight. So, they do a little better there. But CNN seems to be hanging by a thread. I I mm-hmm. just don't... You know, it, it's kind of reminiscent of when you think that ABC broadcast television would uh, summarily ditch their number one program, Roseanne, which might cost them, in the end, $1 billion. They have no problem doing that because of political correctness or whatever. And CNN, with the writing on the wall of these ratings, I mean, articles have been written lately in Forbes and elsewhere uh, looking very negatively at CNN because of the ratings and saying, you know, what's going on here? This is the original cable news channel, 38 years old, and they're coming in a very poor third, and yet they are just digging their heels in, that is CNN, to do more of the same. You know, in, in recent, recently, in a week or so ago, their frequent contributor, Ryan, African-American woman, uh, you talk about tweeting and retweeting. She tweeted a totally fake news story claiming, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but claiming uh, something like President Trump's policies were facilitating uh, pedophilia crimes. It was from a publication that was like a, I don't know if it's satirical or insane or what, but she retweeted this or tweeted it seriously, like it was a serious article. And then she goes on CNN to analyze the news. Now, again, you can imagine if the shoe were on the other foot there and someone from the right side of the fence had done something like that with a fake news item as scurrilous as that was about a Democrat president, well... You know, the earth would stop until that person was fired. So, and then there was another, uh, another story which I don't have on the screen. See if I can remember it. But, oh yes, another 
prominent person at CNN, I, I forget the man's name right now, but there was a, a big article about this on Thursday or Friday that he had uh, he had joined the pack that said either Samantha B shouldn't need to apologize or she didn't do anything wrong. You know, another leading CNN guy. So it, it you know, you just can't believe what you're seeing. And I, you know, I'm optimistic on the one hand that. Social media, citizen journalists, alternative media will help to turn the tide here. But really, the establishment, the deep state, the shadow government are really going for broke here. And they have a lot of power because I, I tweeted the other day, actually, just a comment, something like, um, we can expect governments to be corrupt. I mean, in the history of the world, governments are corrupt. Maybe in varying degrees, but you know, what we can see of this one right now under the previous administration and their lackeys who are still all over the place in the bureaucracy now, they were corrupt with a capital C. But if you don't have a mainstream, easily accessible news media that can convey this news to people, it's an information blackout. And then on top of that, the only news they are reporting, that is 95% of the mainstream media, is uh, slams at President Trump and what he's doing, ignoring the good and seizing on these uh, footnote issues and, and, and trying to say he's worthy of impeachment because of the Stormy Daniels one-night affair, or, you know, ridiculousness mm -hmm. like that. So I think we're really up against it, and I think, again, that Mueller... Is, is not going to, the Mueller thing is not going to end well, in my opinion, which I think, if you read the tea leaves, this is why Rudolph Giuliani is doing what he's doing. He sees this, as does the president, as do his advisors, as a looming political battle, which is what the attempt to get rid of a president is. It's not a legal battle. I mean, they can't even agree on, can, President Trump pardoned himself. Some say yes, some say no. Can he? What do you think, can, Peter? We we had this discussion when Obama was leaving office, and I remember a lot of people on the right were up in arms, thinking that he could possibly not only pardon Hillary Clinton, but also potentially pardon himself, which he never did. But I was even reading today an article from Heavy, and it says, "Yeah, the president can pardon. Uh, the president can pardon himself, but is it right? Is it ethical? I guess is the question." Well, it shows, well, I think Giuliani was quoted as saying that it, it would not be a wise thing to do if President Trump tried to do that, even though he might have the legal authority, according to Giuliani, to do that because it would ensure impeachment. But th this is a total political process, and uh, I just hope that there's enough of a uh, support for President Trump in uh, flyover country and among the silent majority, middle America, to not allow this to happen because as we've said so many times before if it does if these uh, communistic pals manage to take power in November and beyond we are really finished you know it's funny over uh, California tomorrow is going to be one of the states that has uh, the primary so we'll see who gets the nod for governor and whatever else there and uh, I read an article the other day and I, I don't think it might have been in Bloomberg I forget but it was this article claiming Jerry Brown was the best governor California has ever had. <laughs> and 
people of the state are going to miss him when he's gone and what a big job for whoever follows him. And meanwhile, last night, Steve Hilton on his Fox News program finally did a pretty good show, I thought. He devoted about three quarters of it uh, to uh, the legacy of Jerry Brown and he had on debating uh, former Governor uh, Gray Davis who was recalled in 2003 when Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, then got into office. And there was another California Democrat representative there who was spouting nonsense. And then Tommy Lahren on the other side and a, a Republican congressional candidate. And it was a really interesting debate. But you could see that these Democrats there, including Gray Davis, were just spinning out of whole cloth trying to claim everything is just hunky-dory there in the face of the reality you see with your own eyes, the yeah. incredible increase in homelessness, a crime, illegal immigration, the costs of taking care of these illegal immigrants, which is in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's what is bankrupting the state. Oh, and did you see this? And California supposedly passed a law statewide. They are now going to enforce a 55 limit gallon gallon limit of water usage per individual in the state of California. Yeah. So if you live in California, you can use no more than 55 gallons a day, which is about enough for one shower, cooking, washing your hands, flushing the toilet a couple of times. It doesn't even include doing the laundry, which takes up about 40 gallons by itself. And they'll be able to monitor this right down to the ounce because of the smart homes that are coming into play now so and up on Hagman report peter there's an article from the uh from fox news bay area exodus nearly 50 percent of californians say they want to move out soon and they cite a number of reasons some being the soaring home prices but others say it is the heavy-handed government and government controls from the taxes to the water use it, it is becoming an authoritarian it is an authoritarian state yeah, it's sad. It's it, it, it used, for many years it was my favorite state. I felt like my heart was in California, even if I wasn't. And it, it's just heartbreaking now. And I, I I know people there. I have friends there, and I know people who've left too. They're just fed up. You know, how much of this can you take? And these these Democrats on the Hilton show last night on Fox were claiming, yeah, well, a million people may have left, but. We've got many more than that who are coming in. Yeah, right, illegal <laughs> immigrants. I mean, that's a great exchange. You know, Middle-class, productive, native citizens of whatever color or ethnic background are leaving to be replaced by the ultimate low-information voter, which is perfect for the Democrat Party, yeah. illegal immigrants, who now obviously can vote in California because they have licenses and uh, even though they say, well, no, they, that doesn't entitle them to vote, yes, it does. Peter, I want to thank you so much for hanging in there. I know you, you got a cold, a little stuffed up. Uh, it's been, it was a fantastic hour that just flew by, and so much going on in this media hysteria, this climate of chaos, and it's great to have somebody like you with the experience and expertise to be able to sit down here and let us know from your insights what you see going on. And another great interview, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Joe and John, and I'll look forward to seeing uh, you again next week. Absolutely. Looking forward to that as well. Don't forget tomorrow, Stan Dale's back from his trip to Africa. 
He's going to be sitting down with us for an hour and a half. John and I are going to be hosting the shows for the rest of the week as my father has a trip, business trip, to an undisclosed location. I'm sure he uh, has mentioned it in the past, but it's going to be a great week. we got some awesome shows lined up for you. This was just the beginning. So until tomorrow, stay safe. God bless. Have a great night.